I went through it. it pretty quick. Um, you keep, I wish I wish Matt uh, did not redact the uh, name of the sender on the Facebook email. Yeah, I'd like to know who that is. Well, I think I know who it is. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah, because, I mean, I'm not positive, but, I mean, I'm 90% positive because on my uh, thread on, you know, the CIA people working at Facebook, I have the uh, head guy of misinformation, Aaron Berman. He's the ex-CIA guy who who is the manager of global global head of misinformation at Facebook. I have him on YouTube admitting all this exact policy and the, it's the same wording in that email. Oh, so I have, my, I have him on video talking about it. <laughs> nice. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll DM it to you. Ian. And, and the crazy, crazy part about the video where he's talking is that they do suppress uh, content about COVID or um, vaccines that doesn't even violate their policy. So they were going even overdrive. Right, like their, with uh, the vaccine passports, right? I mean, there's a drop in here. I mean, I was, I was skimming through it. One of the things they mentioned was uh, anyone talking about surveillance state, right? Those people were also subject to removal. Yeah. And they said that we're not removing people for, I mean, they said when you report people, don't even, you know, report them for the tweet itself, but rather the whole account, get it removed. Yeah, they, they went on, they went into overdrive about it because it wasn't just, you know, what they thought was misinformation or disinformation or whatnot. They just, they went to a level that they wanted to make sure there was nothing out there about vaccine hesitancy. They went even further, even if it didn't violate any, any, uh, policy. Yeah. I got struck. I think this is what hit me when they, uh, when I got temporarily suspended. How long did you get suspended for, Ian? Uh, seven days. I was tweeting, I think, about either vaccine passports or something like that. You know, like nothing that was like, you know, false. Wow, they even went after the uh, former Italian prime minister. Huh. Okay. There's a lot of stuff in here. It's, uh, it's pretty huge. I remember this whole virality project that he's talking about. I actually signed up for it to see what it was about. And a lot of the information they put there, you know, at first glance, it seems true. And then afterwards, you know, when you actually dig through the language and you compare it to what the CDC is actually putting out, it is false. Well, they they, they didn't even want people talking about how I mean, criticizing Fauci, this was like a, a shield for him. Is this the official Fauci files release? Or are we still I don't waiting? know. I mean, it's possible. But a lot of it is relating to what he was saying. So if you criticized him in any way, you were targeted for removal. How, how long is this one? By the way, everyone, we're going to kick it off very shortly, just for everyone just joined. Um, just getting the panel ready. Um, just a quick question, uh, uh, Ian. How uh, how long is this one? It's 45, but uh, it's more like 43. Yeah. Oh, okay. And yeah. he dropped them all at once, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all out. 
So he has actually been work, looking at this, right, uh, Matt Taibbi says at, at the end, they're working with NA, uh, NFX, uh, who worked on it, uh, Technofog, Schellenberger, uh, Burger Bell, Schmitzu, Aaron J. Mate, oh, he worked on this too, and Mike Benz. So Mike Benz uh, contributed to this drop. Very cool. Oh yeah, it would be good to get Mike. I didn't know Mike Benz uh, yeah, contributed. Yeah, yeah. He, was, he, was, he was in the he was in the hearing as well. He was, yeah. I mean, he wasn't like speaking, but he was in the audience. Yeah. Cool. All right, let me send in uh, Mike Benz. Let me send him an invite, and then we can kick this off. So this is a bit spicier than the last few we've seen, isn't it? Uh, it is, uh, yeah, yeah. From what you've seen, quite a bit. Oh, yeah, I mean, you've got Technofog and Aaron, <coughs> Aaron Mate in here. You might want to invite them. Like, look, scroll to number forty-five and try to invite any of the guys who are listed in the uh, in the thing. Ah, uh, yes, it's Slayman, and I'm not sure if Romy's listening. Let's do that as we we prep the panel. Uh, if you could go, uh, yeah, scroll down. Uh, if we could go to the. Yeah. yeah, number 45 and invite them. I've, um, you guys are both co-hosts, so you can send out invites as well. Yeah. Yeah, let Suleiman handle that so there's no, you know, <laughs> we're not like both inviting at the same time. Yeah, cool. Now, Romy's, Romy's going to action in the background. She's just listening to us. Okay, cool. So from 345 in the in the files drop, yeah? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, number 45 is all the names there. So cool. Matt, all right, so let me, let me get the title set up. So Twitter files live coverage. What do I put? Um, what are they be, what's being censored in this one? Uh, the censorship off. of true stories. Uh, I need something. Is it more COVID censorship? Is that COVID, is it COVID yes. related? Yeah, COVID yeah, related. yeah vaccine, vaccine and COVID related. Vaccine passports, all that stuff. All right. Um, I think we're good to go. Fantastic. Let me know when I can uh, start reading it or if you want me to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, <laughs> let's kick it off. All right. I think we have enough people in here, and I think what's Matt Taibbi tweeting just now? He's like replying to people. So the idea of anti-disinformation needs to flip its focus from paying 80% of the attention to foreign content to 20% to domestic to do the opposite and central to the whole platform. It's a new form of digital censorship. It is counterterrorism machinery aimed inward. Okay, so that sets the stage for it. So Twitter files number 19. The great COVID-19 lie machine. Stanford, the Virality Project, and the censorship of true stories. So, number two. The release of Anthony Fauci's spring 2020 emails has been used to exacerbate distrust in Dr. Fauci. That's a quote, right? Increased distrust in Dr. Fauci's expert guidance. That's another quote from it. So, this is, uh, I'll read this. This is the Virality Project weekly briefing dated June 2 to June 8, 2021. The key takeaways uh, is that, you know, information voids, it says here, information voids, have opened up around two topics that remain unclear to the public. The risk of myocarditis uh, for vaccinated teenagers and the necessity of vaccines for people who have previously had COVID-19. Public health communicators should consider focusing on providing the most up-to-date recommendations on these topics. The anti-vax community continues to seize upon fears that vaccines may contain a spike protein that can cause damage to vaccinated people. The term has been used to support a number of unsubstantiated claims about COVID-19 vaccine safety. Not this much true. You know, I mean, like the they're saying that that's disinformation. Yeah, sure. And then it goes on. The release of Dr. Fauci's spring 2020 emails through the Freedom of Information Act, FOIA, so which is why I think it would be great to have a, 
uh, if Tom could actually join us. He's in the audience here. I'm going to try to invite him up. And that doesn't work. I've already invited him. It's not working. Yeah, okay. No, it's not working. All right. They claim that it has been used to exacerbate distrust in Dr. Fauci and in U.S. public health institutions. As vaccine mandate discussions continue to take place online, stoked by legislation attempting to ban them, a new analogy is emerging between vaccine passports and Jim Crow laws in the American South. Uh, this comes as previous analogies between vaccine passports and the Nazi use of the Star of David received blowback. That's the first uh, text. Okay, the second uh, part of the memo says, Discussion of Fauci's emails has also spread in Chinese on Telegram. At least one group of 7.8 thousand members, which mostly discusses right-wing conspiracies, claims, quote, Fauci, the CCP, WHO, and several deep state agencies have information on how to manipulate viruses and vaccines, which will fully expose the truth about viruses and vaccines, end quote. Now, the takeaway, according to this memo, is that although much of the focus on Fauci's emails is related to his communication with Chinese officials in the early stages of the pandemic, the information also has a major impact on anti-vaccine networks. These networks, and this is the part where Matt Taibbi highlighted, is that these networks are keen to foment increased distrust in Fauci's expert guidance and in American public health officials and institutions. Given the large volume of emails, we also expect these responses will continue to flow in. It goes on. Number three. So this is number three of the drop. Uh, uh, quote, reports of vaccine uh, vaccinated individuals contracting COVID-19 anyway, natural immunity, suggesting COVID-19 was leaked from a lab, and worrisome jokes. So, a lot of these things are true, right? I mean, if you get COVID-19, you will get infected anyway. This is a coronavirus. Natural immunity is a real thing, but they don't want you to talk, to talk about this. So the memo, he, he goes back to the memo. It, it, uh, he highlights a part here that says, uh, this week's top post from a recurring anti-vax influencer on Twitter is Alex Berenson, who shared one of Fauci's email conversations with a researcher after Fauci's 2020 emails were released under the FOIA. Uh, the conversation is interpreted to suggest that the coronavirus may have been leaked from a lab. This tweet received 10.3 thousand interactions, and then they count how many uh, are replies, retweets, likes, and so forth. And then there's an email to Twitter from this organization, the Virality Project, says, Hello, Twitter team. Please attach, uh, uh, please find attached the latest weekly briefing on the Virality Project on the COVID-19 vaccine, social media narratives, and misinformation. This week was a busy one. We covered a range of topics, including updates on commonplace narratives, myocarditis situation, Senator Paul, uh, Paul Rand. It's Rand Paul, you dummies. Yeah, Senator Paul Rand's claims about natural immunity, the serious side effects, including a re-emerging concern about Ghislaine Barr syndrome. Uh, we looked at how anti-vaccine groups are continuing to bring their movement into the legal space through petitions, bans, lawsuits in multiple states, most notably in Texas. Uh, and then part of the thing again, uh, going back to the weekly briefing, says that, uh, like, they highlight a, uh, this conversation is interpreted to suggest that the coronavirus may have been leaked from a lab. So that is, quote, unquote, misinformation or uh, malinformation, as we uh, recently saw in the previous drop. Uh, and then another part of this memo says, two incidents illustrate this pen the dynamic in July 2021. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki announced that the Biden administration would begin focusing on door-to-door -door community-based vaccine outreach. This announcement provoked immediate online outrage, including worrisome jokes uh, with violent undertones that suggested people should respond to official door knockers with hostility, guns, or harassment. So people were concerned that uh, the Biden administration at the time, they were trying to do this door-to-door -door knocking things like, hello, sir, are you, have you been vaccinated? Do you wear a mask? 
And people got upset by that, obviously, right? You don't knock on people's doors and ask them if they were vaccinated. That's a violation of their privacy. Uh, well, if you joked about it, that was subject to you being put in these uh, these papers, right? So you couldn't even joke about it. How dare you? So Matt Tybee describes in number four. He says, all were characterized as potential violations or disinformation events by the Virality Project, a sweeping cross-platform effort to monitor billions of social media posts by Stanford University, federal agencies, and often a slew of uh, state-funded NGOs. Uh, before Michael Schellenberger and I testified in the House last week, Virality Project emails were found in Twitter files. Ian, uh, sorry to interrupt you. Can you just give everyone yep. who doesn't know uh, uh, just a quick overview on who, who the Virality Project is? Yeah, so the Virality Project is a uh, uh, is basically a cross-platform effort to monitor billions of social media posts, and it's being organized by Stanford University, a bunch of three-letter agencies, uh, as well as a bunch of NGOs, which are often state-funded. So that is what the Virality Project is. I mean, you can Google them up. They have a website and everything. So uh, essentially, they, their job, right, was to stop people from promoting so-called disinformation or misinformation, or the term that they used last week was malinformation, which is information that is true, but makes people, you know, distrust the government, right? So that would be considered malinformation. I don't know if they use that term here specifically, but that was what they were going after. So they were not just going after people, you know, posting obviously fake lies, telling people to, I don't know, inject, uh, uh, you know, cyanide into their bodies to get rid of COVID or something, right? It's not just stupid stuff like that. They were actually going after people who were criticizing lockdowns, mandates, vaccine passports, People who were talking about surveillance and how vaccine passports were being used to drive surveillance and, you know, limit your freedom in different countries or travel. If you talked about that, that was subject to being reported and then that would actually get you banned. So they were working with all these organizations, uh, you know, Twitter, Facebook, etc., to deplatform anyone who questioned uh, Dr. Fauci, right? Questioning him, talking about the lab leak theory, for example, that was subject to removal. So. Okay, that's interesting. So, Tracy, thanks for joining us. Uh, we appreciate you coming on. What's your initial thoughts about the Twitter leaks from today? None of this actually surprises me at all because it's all also been released in discovery in the Missouri v. Biden case, which is ongoing right now. Um, it It's it's a terrifying sort of thing to think that the government or a government funded um, nonprofit or project is actually literally instructing social media companies what they can and cannot allow to remain on their platforms. But it's there. There's so much to this. There's a lot in, in the Missouri v. Biden case that everybody should know about also. Yeah, and we can go on to that later on and you can give us more yeah. details on it. Brian, thanks for joining. Just to give a bit of balance, what's your initial thoughts about this um, uh, Twitter files drop? Yeah, I, I mean, the Virality Project, uh, it was, it's an organization. They they were funded by government somewhat. Some of the funding comes from government. Uh, I, I, I don't think what they did with Moral, um, I think that a organization reaching out to another organization and saying, hey, this information is misinformation or shouldn't be on your platform. I don't see anything really wrong with that. Uh, I, I think that organizations communicate with social media platforms all the time and give suggestions uh, about what sh what might be something that shouldn't be on their platform. Uh, it's up to Twitter ultimately 
to decide if that information should remain or not. So I, I, I mean, is it concerning? I, I, I don't think it's surprising. I, I, I think that this happens all the time. Uh, I don't, doesn't where's mean the I evidence that this it. happens all the time? I'm sorry, what's that? I said, where's the evidence that this happens all the time? This is the only you, 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 we've seen this. You, you don't think that organizations and and causes reach out to social media platforms? I all need the time? evidence for it. I mean, if you're going to make well, an well, like I, that. I, I mean, it's obvious that that organizations reach out to social media platforms all the time to suggest that certain content shouldn't be there. I mean, people do that. People contact Twitter all the time and say, hey, this person's saying something about me. Can you have it removed? I'm sure that happens as well. It's just an obvious statement. Yeah, but this is Stanford University working together with three-letter agencies, that's government agencies and NGOs that claim to be scientific in nature. Twitter itself as moderators and Facebook and Google and YouTube and Instagram and TikTok they don't have the expertise to disagree with these people, with these organizations. They don't have some biologists on there or a team of biologists or virologists or epidemiologists to say, um, we think you're wrong. Like, they don't have that. Whereas this virality project is literally run by scientists, so-called scientists, right? Not necessarily, uh, you know, ones who actually do the research, but they're pushing this idea that they're the experts and that you're not allowed to question it and uh, I mean, if you, well, are well, I, I, I don't think they, how do you I, I don't think that. I, I don't think they said you're not allowed to question it. They're not ordering Twitter to remove stuff. They're suggesting it removed. Um, like I said, I don't support the fact that they're doing that, but that doesn't make it illegal in any respect. No, I think it's illegal. I think it happens but this, a lot. Is, this is this is evidence of yeah. the government stepping but, in and saying you cannot question our guy because then we will... It, but it, it's not media. government. Yeah, they're it, funded by government. It actually part, is so. illegal and it actually is the government and that's why this lawsuit is ongoing. And yes, they did pressure and force and threaten and and the narrative that they didn't do that is a hundred percent false i, I haven't seen they, any threats to twitter by the government but oh, if you oh, have i can it, show you pages of yes, them i i certainly I, do I, check my see, pin tweet okay. actually read it actually read through everything in my pin tweet and you'll 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 be shocked into submission i will i will guarantee you okay. there were consistent threats Consistent threats of um, Section 230 protection being removed, consistent threats of congressional action against platforms that didn't do as government was instructing them to do. A specific threat, at least on one occasion, if not more, I've seen a couple of them, from the White House to Twitter to remove content from their platform. This is absolutely coming at the direction of the government, and any insinuation that it's not is blatantly false, and that's been proven now. Uh, Tracy, what was the specific threat to th- from the White House? Hold on, I'll pull up the exact language. I'm just going to need a minute. Thank okay. you. Um, while you check that, Ian, Ian, what do you think about... I mean, sorry, Brian. Uh, sorry, what, Ian, what do you think about Brian's argument that basically, essentially... What he's saying is everybody requests some form of censorship. And so therefore, if, for example, this agency, Vitality, or like you said, the three... Morality Project, have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. If they have more power to do so... Oh, I mean, absolutely. Why... I mean, they, they have institutional power. This is the government that's reaching out. This is Stanford University. It's not some small dinky user with 50 followers telling them, hey, this person said something mean on Twitter, please remove it. it. It's not the government. You, you can't conflate it. It's not the government reaching out. It's it's a project. It's an organization. Yeah, they, they... 
The government. Um, that that is, just, that, it, let me finish. But you're thing. wrong. But the, but you but you're wrong. That you're wrong. You can't. Do you know that Vivek Murthy spun up the virality project? Project Vivek Murthy was basically the driver of the virality virality project. What I'm saying is that you're, I, you're wrong, Brian. You're you're wrong. Okay. Though. Okay. Uh, what I'm saying is that you can't conflate every organization that's working with government or is funded with by government dollars as being government. I, I think that's that's disingenuous. Yes, you can say that the government might have influence over them, and and I'm sure that's the case in many organizations. So we're basically um, saying then, if we follow your logic, that taxpayer funds—that's mine and your money—going into these organizations. Um, funded by the government, in large part by the government, if they take action that is, you know, extra constitutional, that you're okay with that because you can't, well, I don't know where the, the bottom line lies for you really in that case, because then anytime the government wants to do something that they're not allowed to do, they'll go and fund some private private NGO to do it for them. And then people like you will say, oh, well, th that's just a private organization. It, even though there's tons of government funding pouring into it, that doesn't mean it's government run. They're doing whatever they want to do. That, that's, that's disingenuous. So for instance, anybody that gets any sort of government money is therefore working on part of the government. That's your argument. If if they're if they're funded by taxpayer dollars coming from the government, so and there is a line of hold on, and there is a line of a constant line of communication. There's a constant line of communication collaboration. They share employees. They share interns. They share um, they share you know meetings. They're meeting three four times a week. Yes, absolutely, I do. It's also worth pointing out that they that worked with the uh, with the with was... the FBI, right? The Stanford. Uh, the virality project worked with the FBI to suppress Russian sources of media that were criticizing the lockdowns in the West. There's, I'm, I'm, I'm literally looking at uh, a Stanford page right now. This is not part of the drop where they go after RT, which is Russia Today, and and the Russian government for you know publishing articles like true news articles about uh, uh, about you know the Western implementation of lockdowns in, in in Europe, for example, and how people were resisting it. Right. So this idea that, you know, you oppose lockdowns, that was considered, you know, uh, to be to be a red line for, uh, you know, so anyone who, 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 who opposed the, the lockdowns or the mandates was now subject to censorship because they claimed that it was backed by Russian efforts. And they don't even mention the word disinformation here. Like everything that Russia reported, you know, the Russian news outlets reported on the lockdowns was true. It was true. There were lockdowns and people were opposed to it. And police are beating the shit out of people. There's so many videos in the Netherlands, in Australia, for example, many infamous videos where people uh, are peacefully protesting or refusing to wear a mask, being bitten by dogs, being beaten up, rounded up, beaten up, uh, losing their jobs and so on. Uh, if they reported on it, that was subject to removal because it made can, can I, can I just lockdowns even more. Just to circle back to Tracy really fast, uh, do you have the language that the White House used that you consider it a threat? Yeah, and Tracy, in addition... I do. I, I, I do. I'm, I'm looking for it right now. I, I absolutely do. Everything that I tell you, I've got receipts for. Yeah, so yeah. It's Tracy, because uh, my job's to bring a bit of balance to the stage as well. So uh, just in terms of when you what you said in terms of line of communication, don't you think that when you say constant line of communication, like what's the cut off? Because it sounds quite subjective. 
Well, I mean, they, they literally worked in tandem with one another. So it wasn't a case of these guys were doing their own thing 90% of the time. And every now and again, they'd reach out to the U.S. government for some advice. They, they were working, co-working together. And even the virality project, there's there's Zoom calls and videos that they've done where they've said, you know, we're the gap. We're the gap to fill in because the government can't do what the government wants to do on its own. So they've brought us in to do the... Things that they can't physically do themselves. So then, but then, um, but then, isn't your yeah. argument then? So your argument isn't if somebody gets funded by the government vis-a-vis that means they're working on a government project. But what you actually want to see is some form of collaboration or significant collaboration to say that they're part of the government. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, military contractors and others get money from the government all the time, but they're private companies that are working on government contracts. That's not the case here. That's not what this was. This was a largely funded by taxpayer dollars with constant collaboration and communication between the U.S. government and these organizations to specifically censor speech that they didn't like. And that's the simplest way to say it. Weekly meetings uh, between Virality Project and the government. Oh, absolutely. Yes, I do. And it's all been it's all been in discovery um, that's been released from the government. Can you tell me where to find that? I, yes, go to my pinned tweet. It's all documented Look, there. I've is, got. I, I'm there, and I don't see where the where the White House said any of this stuff or threatened anybody. Brian, I don't have that in my pinned tweet. But you t- I have it. all the document. I have that came that, that that's buried inside of here. I'd have to find it. Well, in I'm one just of asking for information. I'm asking for just a link. Can you, can guys, can sorry, you guys do this offline? Like personal can, can, encyclopedia guys, that guys, I'm supposed guys, to be guys, just guys, making guys, claims guys. that that we, isn't backing Ryan, up. That's all. Yeah, Brian, so, Brian, I think you're not going to. I'm thinking everyone is like, can we can we take that shit offline? I need to read the Twitter files and yeah, you know, yeah. this back and forth about about you know you don't believe what's in the White House files. Blah 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 blah. Like okay, so I'm unmuting now. A, a point that I want to make now is that for you know, uh, and this is something Brickfield mentioned to me. He said that you know schools that receive even small amounts of federal funds are considered to be federally funded for the purposes of compliance legislation. So any amount of taxpayer dollars. When it goes to funding an actual project, is considered a, a, a federally funded project, right? So you can't argue against that. Like legally, uh, it's 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 government funded. So you know, if if it's being used to suppress people's free speech, then yes, you can. And you know, technically, even correctly, even uh, you know, say that the government is funding censorship, and that's exactly what we're seeing here. So just because it's run by an independent organization, it's not fully independent if it's being paid by the government to do exactly this, right? So I'd like to go back to the Twitter files and, and, and continue reading it before you guys, uh, you know, hop off into the woods and, and start arguing about the uh, nitty-gritty details. So, number five. Just before Michael Schellenberger and I testified in the House last week, the Virality Project emails uh, were found in Twitter files describing uh, stories of true vaccine side effects as actionable content, right? Actionable content. And this is a, a screenshot that says true content, which might promote vaccine hesitancy. So they were actually going after uh, stories that are true because it made people hesitant. Uh, so viral posts of individuals expressing vaccine hesitancy or stories of true vaccine side effects. So, for instance, if you're a woman and you're experiencing cramps, for example, or, you know, uh, problems with uh, uh, with the vaccine, say maybe you're pregnant or, or something, if you tweeted about that or if you put that up on Facebook, that would subject you to uh, censorship. 
it says here in, in the file, uh, this content is clearly not mis- or disinformation, but be, may be considered malinformation. That's where that term comes from. So they are the ones who came up with this, after all. They came up with the term malinformation, which is described as either exaggerated or misleading. Also included in this bucket are often true posts, which could fuel, fuel uh, hesitancy, such as individual countries banning certain vaccines. So if I tweeted out that, uh, I don't know, Britain uh, you know, decided not to take XYZ vaccine, that was that could subject me to removal because it promotes vaccine hesitancy. And I think Australia banned AstraZeneca, for example. That was considered malinformation, even though it's true they did ban it for, you know, uh, side effect related purpose uh, reasons. So Matt goes on. He says, we've seen, uh, sorry, we've since learned that the Virality Project in 2021 worked with government, worked with government to launch pan-industry monitoring plan for uh, COVID-19 related content. At least six major internet platforms were onboarded to the same JIRA ticketing system, daily sending millions of items for review. So they were just nonstop sending stuff back and forth using the JIRA ticketing system where they would just put a, a, a tweet in there or a post from Facebook or TikTok video that they wanted removed. And, and you know, the uh, these platforms would look at it, either click yes or no, and then, you know, take action against it. So through the Virality Project, uh, uh, though the, uh, sorry, though the Virality Project reviewed content on a mass scale for Twitter, Google and YouTube, Facebook and Instagram, Medium, TikTok and Pinterest, uh, it knowingly targeted true material and legitimate political opinion while often being factually wrong itself. So one example here that he points out is that platforms were the final stakeholders in the VP effort. Uh, uh, six social media platforms engaged with VP tickets this reality project, including Facebook, Twitter, uh, TikTok, Medium, and Pinterest. This also includes YouTube and Instagram. Acknowledging content flagged for review and then acting on it in accordance with their policies. On occasion, platforms also provided information on the reach of narratives previously flagged by the Virality Project, which provided a feedback loop leveraged to inform the project's understanding of policies and ongoing research. That, this is on the VP itself. This is in their, their, uh, their weekly briefing, right? And so now I will read an email uh, uh, from Isabella Garcia Carmago uh, regarding the Virality Project Weekly Briefing, uh, February 23rd, 2021, and it's directed to Yoel Roth, Brian Clark, uh, uh, Nick Pickles, and someone else uh, at Twitter. It says, ah, apologies for including one TikTok member on the earlier thread. So TikTok was also involved in this. Uh, the organization names are alphabetically uh, familiar, sorry, similar, uh, moved to BCC, but blind carbon copy. So this thread is just Twitter team moving forward. And so <laughs> it's got TikTok in there and a whole bunch of people from Twitter as well as Stanford people, including Rene DiResta and Chase Small, both of whom are from Stanford. So the, these two individuals are from the Virality Project. And the email reads as follows. It says, hello, Twitter team. Please find the latest uh, weekly briefing from the Virality Project. This week, the team focused on foreign state-driven conversations about vaccine passports, vaccine hesitancy expressed by NBA players. <laughs> okay. Uh, narratives around the efficacy of vaccine and COVID-19 survivors, conspiracy theories about mRNA vaccines, and accusations of tech censorship alongside several other ongoing themes. We've also begun our ongoing monitoring of Spanish and Mandarin, that's Chinese, narratives highlighted in our non-English content sections. As uh, we look to make this briefing more valuable to our content uh, platform partners, please let us know if there's any specific things you might like pulled out, highlighted, or reported to you direct directly over the JIRA platform. Thank you for your continued partnership. Best, Isabella Garcia Carmago. So that is, uh, I think she works with the Virality Project. 
So Matt Ivey explains in number eight, he says, this story is important for two reasons. One is an Orwellian proof of concept. The Virality Project was a smash success. Government, academia, and an oligopoly of would-be corporate competitors organized quickly behind a secret unified effort to control political messaging. Two, it accelerated the evolution of digital censorship, moving it from judging the truth or untruth, you know, to uh, a new scarier model openly focused on political narrative at the expense of fact. So, number 10. The big- hey, uh, yep. Ian. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but on the Virality Project's website, they have posted every one of their weekly briefings. They're still up there. Yep. Um, so, for instance, this last one on February 23rd in that email, here's the things they focused on. Uh, vaccine passport discussion amplified by Russia state media. News of NBA players' reluctance to participate in the vaccine. Reference of uh, baseball star Hank Aaron, who died 17, I guess, days after receiving a COVID vaccine. I mean, they're labeling in the report, they, they post screenshots of Every different platform, they talk about Thomas Massey's claim that CDC is wrong as one of their uh, posts that they want removed. Um, TikTok stuff, uh, another uh, post in Chinese. So it's like every week, everything is detailed out. They have every single weekly briefing published from January 19th. 2021 through, through the whole year of 2021 and name that's i'm glad so. you jumped in there because that was actually going to be my question because obviously we read the email but i i you're saying those are the things that were actioned based on the the, the email that ian read out yeah i mean it's a 10 page report this weekly uh briefing that they're highlighting in tweet number seven it's still up on their website and it shows specifically every single thing that they um, across social media that they are, I guess, uh, encouraging the social media platforms to ban. So uh, this one for that, that number seven, they really focused on looks like the NBA players um, hesitancy of getting uh, the vaccine. And then also that was the week where they uh, focused on Thomas Massey accusing CDC of misrepresenting vaccine efficacy in survivors. And there's more. So I'm just going to, I think this is a good point to get some more discussion in. Uh, Defeat, you've got your hand up and you've had it on for a while. What's your thoughts about this? Well, I think this is more than concerning. I mean, I think this is dangerous and evil, especially when we think about the vaccine injured and how they were completely isolated, not only from social media, but also from medical care because of these top-down policies. When we were putting on Defeat the Mandates in D.C., you know, uh, our, the main bulk of our people were people who had not taken the vaccines and didn't want to be under a mandate, right? Makes sense. And we were inundated by the vaccine injured, them reaching out to us. And I, I don't really understand the narrative about this because if you're vaccine injured, you've taken the vaccine. You're probably not a Alex Jones watcher. You know what I mean? But what they, what the media, what we now know to be these agencies did is they took Democrats, liberals, uh, moderates who were vaccine injured, and they basically told the American people that these are some right-wing fringe group, even though they had already taken the vaccine. Uh, the you know, if you want to hear the, some of the... So defeat, just to um, provide the other side of the argument of that, the con- wouldn't the concern be 
that when you've got a scenario where someone's taken the vaccine and then you have proliferation of information saying that vaccine has significant side effects, even if you have got some other illness or some kind of other effect unrelated, one will make the connection and assume that's the reason. So what you're saying is, well, so what you're saying is we need to ban these people, which, by the way, one effect of that and one effect of this narrative is that medical practitioners were afraid to actually treat the vaccine injured. That was one effect. So when people say, oh, this is just concerning and it's some like theoretical thing about like censorship and how agencies are funded and how one organization talks to another. And isn't that very interesting? That's not the worst effect. You know, it's concerning that a Trump reply guy gets banned from Twitter. That's concerning. But when hundreds of thousands of vaccine injured can't get medical care because their medical professionals, their medical providers are telling them that they're making it up, that they're crazy, that it's just some type of like uh, contagion, that they're somehow, you know, all these things. Go to react19.org. To see some of their stories, especially in 2021 and 2022. So, to, I mean, from on the face of it, why would that be an issue? Because if somebody is claiming that they have a side effect and they're not manifesting that side effect to the extent that a doctor can't see it, then obviously, so that it's, isn't it fair that a doctor would assume that this is some kind of... No, the doctors were seeing it. The doctors were seeing side effects, but the, what the doctors weren't doing is the doctors don't know how to treat them because they don't know it's happening, right? So if you have a brand new mRNA, right, COVID vaccine that's brand new, and people who are vaccine injured are essentially deplatformed from society. Medical professionals are not going to get that math that they need to try to figure it out. You try, if you think that censorship of vaccine injuries was bad on Twitter and Facebook and these little grandma groups, you try being a medical professional. Imagine you're a doctor who works at a hospital and you're like, wow, I'm seeing all these things and I'm not really sure how to connect them. Try get funding to try to do that. Try writing a peer-reviewed article saying, hey, what else is someone else seeing? The censorship that happened in the medical community was a thousand times worse. I mean, Justin, uh, thanks for joining us. Um, I just don't see the... I, I understand the defeat's uh, argument and his uh, what he's proffering, but the issue is that if a doctor is unable to make a connection, he can't make the diagnosis, that would take a lot of research, wouldn't it, to be able to make the link between taking the vaccine and what the actual tangible effects of that are. No, I mean, actually, this is stuff we've been doing for decades, right? The the VAERS system has been used by the CDC. In fact, over the last three years, they used it multiple times. And then they've turned around and said, no, you can't use it for your purposes, right? Uh, and, and look, in the lawsuit that I have where my Twitter account was taken down, uh, my Facebook account was taken down, the FOIAs that came back from the CDC show this same data. They had uh, BOLO meetings, be on the lookout meetings weekly. Uh, with Twitter, with Facebook, with, you know, with, with these groups, with the social media platforms. And, and they would use a lot of this same data, but they repurpose it. Now, the, the reason why this is so, uh, important to uncover is that these third party groups basically became proxies for the government to censor people. Because in the end, the, you, the First Amendment right is about, 
your protections from your government trying to shut you up and trying to censor what you say, whatever you want to say. Right. And, and so the idea is like they were able to use these third party groups because the third party groups would then come in and say, here are the types of things you should take down. And then the CDC and the HHS would basically just pass that on in these BOLO meetings. Um, and it went back. It's not even the vaccine injury on the stuff that's still, you know, in, in deep discussion, like uh, the, the heart attacks, the uh, sudden deaths, everything else there. There's a lot of really good discussion that needs to be had around there. But the stuff that's known like menstrual cycle issues, right? That, that's been known for almost two years now. And uh, early on, that was thought to be a myth. That was thought to be uh, misinformation, malinformation. And so they included that in the bolo. Imagine how many women say, you know what? I've already got a crazy menstrual cycle that, that, that really throws me off if something goes wrong. Uh, I, I know, for example, a couple who was planning to have a baby in two years. She travels internationally, had to get vaxxed. Menstrual cycle off. They were doing the timing method, and they've got a baby. They're super happy about that, but uh, it definitely throws a wrench in a lot of people's works. The, the and, and the CDC has absolutely confirmed that that is an actual injury. Uh, they've thrown millions of dollars at Johns Hopkins University to study that. Uh, one study that was out of Turkey, 10% of, uh, of, of, of women who are viable for, for giving birth uh, after taking the vax, had serious, serious menstrual issues uh, that needed actual medical attention. So this is this is not theoretical. This had serious impacts. And, and then again, the whole thing was it was the government trying to do an end run around the First Amendment by using these third party companies as proxies. As Solomon, I have to say, for the UK, do you remember we had a member of parliament who in a vaccine debate spoke up with lots of facts and figures and using the British equivalent of theirs, which is a yellow card system, he spoke out and he lost his platform as a member of parliament for doing so. There were protests, as you know, all across London and many major cities. And the problem being was causation and correlation. Whilst there was a clear correlation between those people that had been injured within 28 days of a vaccine, the causation could not be proven enough for the British members of parliament to accept that this gentleman was telling the whole facts and the truth. And exactly as Justin has said, we know that there was a study of 40,000 women at Oxford University who suffered early menopause, lack of fertility problems and ongoing problems, even with things like stillbirths, which in Germany are now at 16.8%. That figure came very recently and is a shocking indictment of the lack of being able to talk about this and the censorship of it. Just to uh, highlight again in this report uh, from tweet number seven, the extent of things that they were censoring, uh, just two things. And then, Ian, if you want to keep going, uh, one yeah. story was uh, this woman named Bonnie Jackson. I guess there was a story about her who she how she was fired from her job as a waitress in New York for not receiving the vaccine. And they highlighted in this report that it received over 150,000 interactions. So anything about that was censored. And then another one, conspiracies about Bill Gates vaccine motives. So if you tweeted or posted about Bill Gates and conspiracies around this time, this was also highlighted in the report and censored. That's right. Yeah. Brian, so I'm going Brian, to read number 10. Uh, let, let's just have one comment from Brian just to give a bit of balance and then we'll go for you, Ian. Brian, right. uh, what's your... Um, I'll try my best to 
back you up. So, Brian, have you got any thoughts before we move on to Ian? Yeah, I mean, I don't have too much pushback. I I think that, like I said before, uh, I, I'm not for what was done. I, I, I don't think, I don't, overall, I don't believe in censorship unless it's over a certain line. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think that, I think that some of these things are definitely over the top. Can I make a really quick comment? Yeah, go, go for, for it. it. I, I, yeah, so I so I do think that I'm I am very concerned about the censorship of what they deemed malinformation because I think it's important to be able to discuss side effects and things like that. Um, there, especially because then you can have a back and forth. Um, understanding of the side effects and what the mechanisms are and things like that. Uh, once again, I, I think that I've made it very clear that I think that these vaccines are very important and um, are uh, beneficial in certain groups. Um, and so I hate to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but I think that the censorship really uh, increased the doubt uh, that people had about them and I think has led to a, a deep distrust of the medical community. And I think that's tragic. And Liz, just to specify, you basically mean like at-risk groups, like the elderly. Is is that what you're referring to? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Ian, I think it's Ian. well deserved. You know, it's well deserved the uh, distrust of the medical community. I think uh, I think you fellas have lied long enough, but that's just my opinion. I'll continue. The beginning. <laughs> Okay, this is terrible. <laughs> You're funny, funny. Yeah. Okay, number 10. Uh, it says, the beginning on February 5, 2021, just after Joe Biden took office, Stanford wrote to Twitter to discuss the Virality Project. By the 17th, this is uh, 17th February, Twitter agreed to join and got its first weekly report on anti-vax disinformation, which included or contained numerous true stories. And so I'll read the email. It's from uh, Stanford. Uh, it's from Isabella Garcia Camargo. That's her again. It says, hello, Twitter team. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you guys in the room as well, by the way. I wanted to follow up on our conversation at the end of the last year when we introduced the work that the Stanford team was starting up on vaccine disinformation response. Since we spoke, we've begun our new partnership across three uh, academic ins- uh, organizations, including Stanford I.O., University of Washington CIP and the uh, uh, NYU CSMAP. The, these are all uh, they're, they're actually listed on the uh, on the website on the Virality Project. Yeah, so that would be the New York University, the University of Washington, and the National Council on Citizenship, as well as Graphica. Right, Graphica is involved in this, so remember that name. Um, and DFR Lab. So DFR Lab is also a part of this. Our, uh, our, uh, I think DFR Lab, I believe, is, is government. But anyway, our analysts are chugging along, conducting monitoring across seven uh, key internet factions that we have identified in this space. Uh, and I'd like to get a name redacted to weigh in on this because he's done some research in this space. But after I read this email, he, I'll, 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 I'll let you know. It continues. It says... Now that the partnership is underway, we would love to open up this conversation again to understand how we can best collaborate with the Twitter team in this work. The same JIRA system from the EIP is up and running, and we have improved the notification system to incorporate your feedback from our last chat. We would not have as short of an SLA expectation as the election work. This is entirely a marathon or a sprint. So keep in mind. The system that they're using to report this stuff, right, this vaccine disinformation, is built on the back of a previous disinformation reporting system, again, JIRA, which was used to suppress anything related to the um, 
to the uh, elections, right? That's what that was created for, and now it's being used to suppress any vaccine-related conversation. And so she continues, she says, our goal would be to have a line of communication with your team, which, uh, but by which we can raise vaccine-related disinformation narratives we are noting on either Twitter or across other platforms. Please let us know if you're interested, and we can find some way to sync up next week. Uh, Isabella Garcia Camargo. So I like uh, Name Redacted to weigh in on, on this. I think he has a lot to say. Yeah, this, this is uh, so, so, okay. This whole apparatus that they built uh, through CISA and these uh, private organizations uh, was built ahead of the 2020 election. And I have, you know, one of the tweets or threads that I did, uh, the people in government, um, I have the officials from the Office of Director of National Intelligence, you know, they say on video, that, you know, they, that after the 2020 election, that they're proud of, like, the this two-year project, which essentially sort of began in 2018, uh, that w- was um, created f- specifically for the 2020 election, and how they described this organization as the model of the future, his quote, his uh, statement, you know, going forward, and it involves the same people. So you have you know, Stanford, University of Washington, Graphica, Atlantic Council. We're working with this uh, EIP, which was the Election Integrity Partnership for the 2020 election portion. And now it looks like these same groups are working with the Virality Project. And so it's the same group of uh, uh, organizations working on every hot topic issue. And it just went from the 2020 election now to COVID uh, censorship. Thank you for that. Um, name redacted, would you mind reading 11 and 12 and, and onward? Because I need to do a quick thing, super quick. So you can continue reading the thread. Sure. Yeah, thank you. So uh, number 11, February 22nd, uh, 2021, Stanford welcome uh, Twitter veterans like Yoel Roth and Brian Clark, instructing them on how to join the group JIRA system. Uh, and then they have a, a link to a Zoom meeting. And uh, in my... Uh, thread that I did on Facebook censorship or (laughs) the funny part about that was the Facebook censorship uh, thread that I wrote was specifically about former intelligence community officials that are working at Facebook. And, you know, as I said earlier, uh, before a lot of people joined, uh, an ex-CIA officer or analyst is the is the global head of the misinformation department at Facebook, the trust and safety. His name's Aaron Berman. But in that thread, um, there's a video, uh, which we'll talk about later, uh, between, I think it's Stanford University, and it has this person mentioned in tweet number 11, Brian Clark from Twitter, and then also has Aaron Berman from Facebook. So we'll get to that later, but I haven't seen this Zoom video, but that's what number 11 is. Number 12, March 2nd, 2021. We are beginning to ramp up our notification process to platforms. In addition to the top seven platforms, uh, Virality Projects soon gain visibility to alternative platforms such as Gab, Parler, Telegram, and Getter, near total surveillance of the social media landscape. Uh, And then, uh, Tracy, through the Missouri v. Biden um, case, you know, in the uh, so Brian Scully worked at CISA. Uh, This was mainly for the 2020 election. And in the deposition, he highlighted 
you know, sort of this uh, group that they set set up for these uh, monthly meetings, and it included all the top social media platforms, Facebook, and even included Microsoft and Reddit, by the way. So even though, you know, Microsoft and Reddit are not named in tweet number 12, they're, they're definitely a part of the COVID uh, effort too. And then the email, let's see, is from uh, Jack Cable at Stanford University. And this is sent out to these same uh, people at Twitter, Yo Roth and Brian Clark. This is the first time I've seen Brian Clark's name mentioned in these uh, Twitter files, but he's he was one of the top uh, uh, executives in trust and safety at Twitter. So this Let's see this email. Hi, Twitter team. Uh, as Isabella mentioned, we are beginning to ramp up our notifications process, the platforms, and then it just goes on uh, with more. And that, and then again, there were on Virality Project's website, which I'm surprised these are still up there. But uh, uh, Tracy, I think we're going to probably have to go and download all these reports before they scrub it. I'm surprised they haven't scrubbed that website. So let's see. Tweet number 13, through July of 2020, Twitter's internal guidance on COVID-19 required a story be demonstrably false or contain an assertion of fact to be actioned. But the Virality Project, in partnership with the CDC, pushed different standards. So uh, first picture, uh, is it demonstrably false or misleading? There are three things to consider. Information that is significantly altered, manipulated, doctored, or fabricated fabricated claims that are presented improperly or out of context, for example, through false connection, incomplete presentation or false context, and claims that are widely accepted by experts to be inaccurate or false. And then the second screenshot, um, is it advancing a claim of fact regarding COVID-19? There are three things to consider. Strong commentary, opinions, and or satire are not subject to this policy. For a tweet to qualify as misleading claim, it must be an assert, an assertion of fact, not an opinion. Okay, so tweet number fourteen. So name just, 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 a, just a, sorry, sorry, name just to interrupt. Like, what's the problem with that? Like that just seems like a fair, balanced uh, way of uh, deducing if there's misinformation. Right. If I could uh, give an example, yeah, a clear example, was claiming claiming that COVID was around before it was stated that it was around. So I'm a long hauler. I caught COVID on Christmas Day of 2019. Obviously, at the time, I had no idea it was COVID. But by the time COVID came out and you could see the sorts of symptoms and we started to see blood test results even before we actually had tests, it was not just me, but hundreds of people realised they had had COVID either in the December or possibly the November even of 2019. But to discuss or to state that that was the case was forbidden. And I was removed from Facebook, Reddit and a uh, well clubhouse, <laughs> another social audio for claiming that I'd had COVID because we were told that it wasn't possible. It didn't exist. So maybe that's the sort of thing they're referring to, which was very basically a thread on this, yes, uh, on, in 2020 where he highlighted uh, possible instances of COVID being around as early as January, possibly as, as, as early as uh, December of 2019, uh, that, that actually show a spike, a massive spike in, uh, uh, you know, 
uh, hospitalizations for flu-related illnesses, right? And this was not known to be COVID at the time, but it seems to be the case. And I think the data now actually adds up. I actually retweeted uh, just since a 2020 tweet earlier today, if you want to check out my timeline. I might actually just pin it to the top. But isn't it, I, um, I mean, Dr. Don, three years I, ago I today, three years ago to the dates, the dates, <laughs> crazy. Yeah, and I I commented under Justin's tweet, too, because not even a month later, I did a column using the CDC's influenza-like illness data and charted it out to show a spike in influenza-like illness the very end of October, early November. So that is true, yes. Liza. So basically, tweet number 13, the point of it is that, hold on a second, Twitter had their own policy on what what they would basically... um, posts they would take down and it required the story to be demonstrably false or contain an assertion of fact to be actioned. And then the point is, is that Virality Project in partnership with the CDC pushed to have different standards or basically more broad standards to take down more uh, content. I mean, just yeah, it's not really what was said, guys. It's, it's more about how it was enforced. I think that's really, I mean, we're going to keep finding similar things here and i know this is not the provocative commentary but like the problem it was not a policy problem at this point and i've not read the rest of the the rest of it but it was more of a people and enforcement problem and uh, you know we're going to continue to see this where it was how you interpret each one of the i mean well, you just mentioned name redactor there's nothing incorrect i mean I, i don't think anybody here is saying that there's something incorrect about what was written in that policy, correct? And I just want to make sure right. that... And then here, it says this in number 14, is it where it shows that how this uh, um, sort of censorship was um, sort of... They, they, um, it was broader than just, you know, a totally false statement. So, for example, tweet number 14, Virality Project told Twitter that, quote, true stories that could fuel hesitancy, end quote including things like celebrity deaths after a vaccine or the closure of a central New York school due to reports of post-vaccine illness should be considered, quote, standard vaccine misinformation on your platform. So they're saying in this tweet that even true stories that could fuel hesitancy to get the vaccine um, should be uh, labeled as misinformation. But isn't isn't that Um, because although on the face of it, it is a true story, there is a celebrity and... Uh, later the celebrity uh, had a death after so there was a celebrity death and it was after the vaccine but the implication of that or the inference is that it was caused by the vaccine so even though the statement might be accurate the, what they want to try and stop is exactly information right i want to spell that out a little bit more actually Suleiman. so just because you know this, there was this huge thing that was happening in the beginning where depending on where you stood in the political spectrum, when two events occurred within a specific time period, the, depending on if you were vaccine hesitant uh, or whether you were pro, like super duper pro vaccine because it re- represented your ideology, you would essentially say, if you're vaccine hesitant, you would say the vaccine caused this. And if you were very, very pro vaccine, you would say there is no way the vaccine caused this. By the way, both were incorrect. Um, <laughs> And 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 the, 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 this is actually the underlying problem that they were trying to get around, which is that if you if you do that, you are naturally causing vaccine hesitancy, uh, which 
at that time, the, 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 the plan was that we wanted to, quote unquote, inform the public and not cause undue vaccine hesitancy. Now, do I agree that we should be like censoring people? Absolutely not. But I think, you know, uh, the, 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 it was all, this entire, you know, awful path was paved with good intentions. I, I, I that's kind of what I wanted to say, but I, I want to make sure that I'm not. Again, the way it was done, the secrecy behind the closed doors to say things literally in writing that, hey, we should not have, quote unquote, true content that is being misrepresented. Um, uh, you know, I, I think that's incredibly scary in some ways, uh, because who the hell gets to make that decision? But I do think that the policies themselves, I don't see anything that's like super malicious and, and crazy bad about I it. I mean, again, I, I'm, I do. So the reason is because, right, and it goes back to your point. Like, I don't disagree with you entirely, but I, I disagree on, 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 on the principle of it because uh, they were fine when these pro-maskers, you know, the people who are ideologically aligned to the vaccine or wearing masks, wearing like triple masks, we're saying everything was related to COVID, right? Like a child could get sick from, I don't know, the flu. And they would say, oh, this child is getting COVID is going to kill him. You know, you had, you had Fauci, I think, on TV talking about a very, very rare illness that affects something like, you know, 0.001% of, of the population of like children saying that unless you get vaccinated, your child is going to bleed to death and his organs are all going to explode, right? I forget the name of the disease. Kawasaki disease. The media was talking about it, you know, like MSNBC had some doctors on, CNN had their little doctor on, uh, New York Times infamously had, you know, that, 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 that woman who changed COVID policy. I forget her name. Uh, she was blasted recently, right? Uh, she, uh, Zainab. Yeah. Yeah, Zainab. Zainab, yeah. She, you know, like all these people, they were going on about Kawasaki disease and, and how we need to lock everything down. Otherwise, if you don't lock things down, we're all going to die. Your children are going to explode. They're literally going to be turned into puddles of flesh unless we all get vaccinated, right? This stuff was being promoted in the media. And if you spoke out against it, you were considered a vaccine-hesitant person. How dare you endanger the lives of our children? And that was fine. Here's, and, here's but, a, here, Ian, hold on. Ian, here's the Here. problem. The problem, Ian, is that this that, that same thing is happening with people who are pro-vaccine. The people who are anti-vaccine, and I'm not calling them anti-vaxxers in a negative way. What I am saying is that there there's a whole lot of similar fear being ginned up around the vaccine, saying your kids are going to die, your families, you know, you've put yourself at risk of terrible diseases, heart attacks, and all of this kind of stuff. So, so that's a two-way street. That's not just oh, I know. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, but the, the problem is the policies are only applied one way. So you could have, you know, they would urge Twitter and Facebook and Google and so on to ban people who are, I guess, anti-vaccine, who are worried that the vaccine could cause these injuries. Uh, but they were totally fine with all the insanity that was coming from, you know, like the Zena, for example, where she wanted lockdowns everywhere and literally did impose lockdowns. So it caused a lot of governments to to reevaluate their positions because, you know, of all this crazy insanity that was coming from the newspapers themselves urging for lockdowns. Like, none of that. Was Here, here's fine. the extent that they they crossed. This is. I mean, we can argue, of course, anything they took down, they shouldn't have, like maybe false stories, whatever. But here's where they really, really crossed the line. So in this tweet number um, 14, the, the screenshot in it, you know, they, they labeled three sections of what uh, is misinformation or, or post to take down. The first one was standard vaccine misinformation. So just 
basically, you know, false stories. Uh, and then they highlighted repeat offenders of this, such as Robert F. Kennedy or Sherry Tenpenny. And then um, example, RFK posts that 4,000 vaccine adverse reactions were reported to CDC in one week. Here's the problem, though. The third bullet point, true content which might promote vaccine hesitancy. Viral posts of individuals expressing vaccine hesitancy or stories of true vaccine side effects. This content is clearly is not clearly mis or disinformation, but it may be malinformation, exaggerated or misleading. So they they're calling for any posts that are actually true, true stories, nothing false about them that may um, push vaccine hesitancy. So the problem here is they did not allow uh, users across any social media platform to have uh, dis- open discussions about, um, let's see, vaccine side effects that were true, that that could not even be debunked or labeled as false. They wouldn't even allow that content on these platforms. And that that is where, and this is, again, there's clear gray areas. This is one of those very clearly gray, clearly muddy, clearly poorly. This is where literally, depending on where you stand on the vaccine, you could make the case. I I just made, I'll give you a very simple case. Imagine there's a situation where we don't currently have information around uh, whether, you know, A causes B, right? We see that as A rises, B rises, right? Correlation. And we don't know one way or the other depending on what policy you want enacted, you could claim, hey, it's not actually A that's rising that's causing B to rise. It's actually completely unrelated. Or depending on your other side, you could say, hey, they're not related at all. And I, and I think that that's really where the, the problems occurred. I, I do want to caution a little bit. Clearly, they were referring, at least from, uh, from uh, what, what you just read. And again, it's all like, in the eyes of the beholder, you're know, like, it's like, it's, it's crazy. Cause what I'm hearing is, Hey, people are making connections that may not be there. And so we don't want those connections that may not be there to cause people to not do the right thing for them. Um, which the, again, who defines the right thing in this situation is probably where all the problems are. But, um, but that, I think that's what they meant. But again, everybody will interpret it in their own special way. And that's why policies, in my opinion, are always challenging. This one clearly was incorrect. They censored people who were clearly sharing their hesitancy. And, uh, and it's okay for people to talk about it. In fact, what, uh, what any doctor can tell you is that the real change in behavior occurs when people can actually voice their concern. When you're sitting with a patient, your job is to be like, hey, what bo- what's what's your concern and to actually understand them and then not to push them one way or the other but to come to a shared decision and i think we've completely forgotten about that in covid and so i wanted to kind of give you guys a different framework which is again maybe i'm too um uh, too optimistic and not as cynical uh, because uh, i don't come from the you know the, the the other side of it but that that's sort of what it sounded like to me so the european first vaccine astrazeneca which... oh, sorry sorry i pressed that bit 
before you start talking money. But basically, Brick, because I know you... Sorry, I was just going to say, our vats, Solomon. Yeah, you remember we had uh, Germans refused it and sent it back when blood clots started appearing. And while they could put it in the papers that blood clots were appearing in people and it was legally withdrawn and the money didn't change hands and, the you know, the vaccines were sent back and the Germans were refusing to use it, as you remember, it was all very big news. But I don't think at the Twitter level, the user was able to report that they'd had blood clots as a causation from having had an AstraZeneca jab. Because we were jabbing earlier than the US. That was very early on, I remember. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so, Brick, Brick you've had your hand up for a while. Uh, so I just want to ask you a question and then you can say what you want to say. So basically, when you look at tweet number 14, is it the case, and I've just reread this as well as the attached uh, um, image, do you think Matt Taibbi was being too generous in the explanation? Because although Matt Taibbi has given an example since celebrity deaths after vaccine, but if you actually look at the actual document or the actual image, they don't say anything like that. It does seem like they want to actually ban any form of true story in relation to vaccine side effects. Brick? That's that's correct, uh, Suleiman. That's correct. So... That that's exactly what the the screenshot, uh, you know, tells a little bit of a different story. But yeah, if if anyone was posting any true stories about vaccine side effects, they were uh, they were censored because they and, the whole goal here was they wanted to push people to get the vaccine, so they didn't want true stories going around about side effects that people were having that were true uh, to you know, cause hesitancy. And ironically, uh, the uptake right now of the latest batch of vaccines, the bivalent, uh, for adults, that's under 20%. For the entire population, it's under 30%. For children under five, it hasn't even reached 10%. Uh, and, and there's actually significant evidence that the, the mistrust and the gap of trust between healthcare institutions and the public has caused uh, lack of vaccinations for other things that, you know, are, are perfectly safe, it seems, for historically. So these are, you know... Which is truly the, terrifying. Yeah. That's really terrifying. It is, and I think you can you can lay it strictly at the feet of the government, you know, trying to mandate this stuff and saying, you're going to lose your job, your kids can't go to school, uh, you can't participate in society. There are two sets of people. They're the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. And if I was given my choice, I'll take the unvaccinated. Thankfully, I, I am. But just you can't just blame, like you can't just blame for... the government. I think in addition to that, Ian's quite right what he said earlier. It, yeah. you have to, the burden has to be on the medical profession as well. They have a They have a duty of care to the patients and to basically not have a scenario where they were very biased, not allowing any kind of other thought. Don't you think that was highly problematic as well? Or equally, if not. I mean, let me me give the medical provider side of things. The problem that's occurred, and again, this is like the core problem with American healthcare. I can't speak for other health systems, but in the U.S., how much time do you get with your doctor? Can anybody, like the average time, do you know? I know it because like, because of my job, but uh, the average time that a doctor spends with a patient is less than 13 minutes. It's 12 really, minutes and some seconds. It's like an hour here. That's that, exactly that right. Wow. Yeah. That's exactly and, right. And if, if you're an ER physician, you are seeing, you know, 20, 30, 40 people within a eight well, hour but, window. But to be fair, Liza, to be completely fair, the ER physician doesn't actually need to be doing this care. Unfortunately, that's the other part. No, but Dr. Danish, a what's lot the relevance? People, if you can just explain that. So I'll walk, well, in, in 12 minutes, and I think it's 36 seconds. I can double check that. But 
12 minutes and 36 seconds. I'm supposed to have a real conversation with you about vaccines. No, so, so this so is what, the no, problem no, so what, with American no, 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 healthcare no, no, so, is that there's not, hold on, hold on. There's not enough time. So when a patient says, oh, I'm worried about this, I'm worried about that. The doctor is literally trying to get enough of a conversation to address those concerns. And so the problem here is a much more structural problem. I think we have completely fractured the relationship with uh, doctors and patients. There's also the other part of this, which is I do want to push back a little bit on the bivalent. The reason why that's the case is not just because of the mistrust. It's also because the virus has changed and the virus has become less virulent. People are less worried about the virus because they can get the virus and not end up in the hospital like we saw in the early days of COVID. Uh, we know more about the virus now. So there's less uncertainty about the, the treatment protocols. We actually do have early treatment protocols that work uh, and not some some that are claimed to work, but ones that actually work. Uh, we know how to manage these patients. We're not putting these patients on ventilators early because we actually know that putting them prone on their bellies is better than putting them on ventilators. We know so much more about the virus right now. And again, we have to, all of us have to force ourselves, and it's hard because we all have a, I mean, depending on where you stood on things and how the lockdowns affected your mental health, uh, like they did with mine. I was a caregiver for my dad. It was incredibly hard, right? Uh, incredibly challenging. I hate thinking about those early days of COVID. But you have to put yourself back where we were. And at that time, we knew nothing about the virus. All of the stuff that other people are saying, like, oh, it didn't kill any people. First of all, across the, or across the world, the word from the medical community was that there was a 3% fatality rate. But so, uh, for so, the so original Dan, let me virus. just pull back because you're making a lot of points. So in terms of your initial point, I just don't think it follows through, irrespective of if you have five minutes with your patient, 13 minutes with your patient, one hour with your patient. As a doctor... Okay, so let, let's let do it. Point, I'm going to do it right now with you. Let me finish my point, Dan. No, so let, let me finish my point. Let me finish my point because you, you spent about 10, five minutes explaining yours and you went through a very number of tangents. So... The reason why I think it's, 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 it doesn't follow through is because as a medical profession, you have a duty of care to the patient in a holistic manner as well, not in terms of a micro manner. And I know a number of people in the medical profession who did the research, looked at the uh, data, looked at alternative views, looked at alternative ideas, and then deduced that, look, this is problematic. Unfortunately, the vast majority, if not all of them, weren't willing to do that. They were following the narrative and they were making sure that they kept their job safe or, or made sure that they did, they, you know, continue doing what they were doing or follow the normal narrative. That, for me, it goes against the entire duty that someone has as a doctor. And that's why no one trusts doctors now. Okay, so you're done. Now I'm going gonna, gonna to completely prove you incorrect. 95% of American doctors got the vaccine. So there were 5% that did not. And that was their personal decision. Number two, so that therefore, you're, you know, the problem is the voices that you're talking about were a lot louder and people, certain people made a shit ton of money. There are doctors out there prescribing a $10 drug, but they build pill mills selling ivermectin online. So there's a ton of stuff here. There's an entire industrial complex around here that we're not talking about. Hold on. I'm going to finish here. So that was one part of it. There's people that are making money just like the pharmaceutical companies did. I lit, there's a really good article on a few doctors that literally write hundreds of ivermectin scripts that only can be filled through their specialty pharmacy. They're making millions of dollars on this and they're loud as hell, Zoyman. So I know that you, you, they come up on your stage because they're using your stage and other people's stages to sell drugs. So that's number one. So that if you hate pharma, you should hate them too. Number two, the trust in the doctors has hurt because doctors were 
were in the middle of a war within their own communities, trying to figure out what to do. It does make a difference. When a patient comes in, Suleiman, you're only thinking about COVID. But if a patient, the average American Medicare patient has three comorbidities. So that means that they have diabetes or they have heart failure or they have heart disease. They come into my clinic for 12 minutes. In those 12 minutes, I'm supposed to talk about debilitating diabetes that is likely uncontrolled, hypertension and heart disease. And by the way, there is no way in hell that that person should not get the vaccine. That is actually the only person I would say that for sure, there's no doubt should get the vaccine. If you're having that conversation and that patient, after you've talked to them about their comorbidities, is literally hesitant, you have two or three minutes or less left. And by the way, is, and this is a philosophical question, which is, if that patient is vaccine hesitant, which is totally, completely within their rights, if you're having that conversation with a patient, is your duty only to that patient or to your entire panel of patients? Because by the way, in two minutes, there's another patient that will be shortchanged because you spent extra time on this patient. So I know it's easy to sit on your high horse and talk crap about doctors that were literally venting patients in New York at the time. But we have to be honest about the fact that we didn't know what the fuck was going on. And we were trying our very best. And I think this is the problem. It's really easy to villainize certain doctors. But you know what? People were going through hell. And I have colleagues that are dead. And you can actually talk to many doctors, colleagues in New York that didn't make it. So, again, with all due respect, you don't know what you're talking about. You've not been in the room with the patients. I'm telling you, it was incredibly complicated. And there was not enough time to manage all so, of it. So I, I Sorry, get you, not to get so difficult, but this yeah, is an important difference. No, no, so I get that you're, being emo- you're getting emotional because of your own interaction. With the this is not emotional. This is honestly right, right. just trying to make you're sure that you actually hear uh, information. So The issue is this. It's quite, it's quite simple. There's a reason why people have lost trust in doctors, irrespective. I agree the, medic, the, the entire healthcare system in the United States and in the United Kingdom needs a significant overhaul. That's a separate issue. But specifically about this, the fact that the medical profession did not allow any kind of alternative ideas, did not allow any type of alternative views. It was very draconian in the way they did it. You're telling us now you didn't know what was happening. That wasn't the impression you guys were giving to everybody at that time. That is not true at all. It is. is. You think the doctors were claiming that we knew what we were doing? The the impression you gave to the public. In the first month after COVID. The the impression doctors gave to the public was, you must take the vaccine. You must, it is going to be beneficial for you. (laughs) There is COVID. There should be lockdown. There was significant, this information was out there and it was from the medical community. And that's why why people don't trust the medical community. So, so first of all, we've got to separate vaccine from lockdowns. Lockdowns were not supported by the large majority of medical community. I think those are two very different specific. So we're going to talk about vaccines. At that time, we had multiple studies that had come out, including one, unfortunately, only one randomized control trial that was independent. And again, Operation Warp Speed pushed a lot of this stuff through very, very quickly. And you had people that were dealing with a high fatality rate in at least in certain parts of the country. And we were trying to do it was literally around first making sure that we can think of things at a population level. And so, again, when the vaccines came out at that time, there was a belief that it would reduce. uh, You know, when you took the vaccine, there was a reduction in getting the virus at 95 percent with that variant. The variants changed. And then so the information changed. And I will I will say that a lot of doctors did not change their position with changing information. But again, the problem is that we needed data to be able to change our decision. 
and anecdotes are really and difficult to practice. And the data was, was nonsense, though. Here's the thing. I mean, in the UK, you had Matt Hancock, who was releasing new data every time they wanted to extend the lockdown. So, like, it's time to release a new variant and scare the public into... The Ian, the problem... Again. The, the problem is that we were all in this together. We're, we, are, we, we were learning about the virus as it was evolving. We were evolving along with it. If, you, if you're expecting a doctor who's got seven minutes with a patient to be that deep in the weeds looking at Ian Hancock's claims in real time, that's a very, very difficult needle to thread, right? So we, there, there are over 50,000 papers on COVID over the past three years. People are doing the best, doctors are doing the best that they can to stay up on that information, but it's very difficult to tease out, especially when you've got leading public health officials from top-tier universities disagreeing with each other publicly. Once again, I don't think I don't think they should have been censored, the ones that were censored. I think that there should have been an open discussion, but but you had two stories coming out uh, and you you have to really, really have some technical expertise to look at these papers very closely before you can weigh in either way. So we are all in yeah, this together. Issue, and I, 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 once that... again, I feel like doctors, doctors, the high, hindsight's 2020 and doctors really, really um, were stuck. Well, in the there. issue is that a lot of it was politically driven. So anyone who went against the grain and went against the narrative, they were shut down. Right. For instance, the Twitter, uh, the Twitter files right here, right now. One of the things that was censored are true stories or true posts which could fuel hesitancy, such as individual countries banning certain vaccines. So to even mention that, say, for instance, uh, Germany bans AstraZeneca because they don't believe in its efficacy or that it's dangerous, to even talk about that was considered verboten, right? So, I mean, when you have politically driven but stuff doc- like that. But the doctors didn't make that policy. The physicians who were taking care of these patients did were so busy taking care of the patients, they weren't making that kind of policy decision. And just to, so, and just to add to so, that, Ian, uh, there were, I mean, uh, when I said about doctors, I'm not paying all doctors in the, with the same brush. There were a small amount of doctors who did speak out, who did risk their jobs, who did risk their careers, who did have to create private profiles on social media to get, get out this information. And those are the ones that we respect, and those were in the minority. But Ian, do you want to carry on? Because we're it's a yeah, like, those are the ones you respect, like, respect so much. Just to be very clear, I want to mention was, was one thing. On Twitter because he spoke out against this stuff, right? He and so everybody else signed a great I was banned from a platform by yeah. a doctor on this platform, and the doctor so, knows who he is. I was banned from speaking. I wasn't allowed to speak in Clubhouse so, because a doctor on this stage stopped me doing so. So to. Uh, the, the discussion between uh, Dr. Danish and Suleiman. So uh, Dr. Danish, I know what, um, you know, a, as COVID came up, like no one knew what the hell was going on. Okay. So there was a lot of confusion, how to treat it. Um, and then the push for vaccines. But this is where, you know, I have a problem. And I'm looking at the uh, weekly report from Virality Project of March 2nd, where there, they have one section in here about a spike in activity around alternative COVID-19 treatments. So <clears throat> they labeled the following. Um, let's see. The, this included a network of websites collecting research and meta-analysis on the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, vitamin D, zinc, remdesivir, and other alternative cures. So any doctor or any average American, anyone who was posting anything about, oh, I hear that 
vitamin D helps or hydroxychloroquine or zinc or whatever, you were banned because their whole push, their whole goal on this was there was not to be allowed. They did not allow any discussion of anything, any alternative sort of uh, remedies or cures that were they, they just wanted the focus to be on uh, vaccines. And if anyone was online talking about any other thing, um, hydroxychloroquine, vitamin D, zinc, these are things vitamin D and zinc does not kill you. Like you were not allowed to discuss this as an alternative to a vaccine. Namely, so, just, so just real quick uh, on, on that, that just one comment on that real quick. Name redacted, good point. But the reason why the government did not want any kind of alternative treatment is because uh, the vaccines would lose their emergency approval status. Because if there are alternative treatments, you cannot, uh, you can no longer argue that there is an emergency and that these vaccines need to be pushed out without any Tim, trial. Can you explain that in the context of steroids? So we use steroids from the first days of the pandemic. So can someone explain to me how that EUA argument stands up when from the first days of the pandemic, we have been providing steroids for patients and the EUA still went through? I'll wait. Yeah, Dr. Danish, those those are treatments, right? And we, that's why, for example, with the mononucleal uh, antibodies that Dr. Fauci pushed, he didn't push them until the day after, the direct day after that the first adult vaccine uh, Just, was uh, the community was was introduced there? So I, I think there's absolutely a case we made that they could have legally been challenged there. Uh, I think treatments are different than things that are designed to treat the vaccine itself. No, no, but sorry. and it was different from the back UK because we didn't Comment need EUA. Say it again, sorry, um, Mike Benz. I see you in the audience. If you want to request, we'll, we'll uh, bring you up. I'm I'm happy to kind of entertain that thought, but you know, as I've spoken to people that I know and talked about the EUA regulations, they were like, well, if that was the case, you know, I don't know if you guys know, but we were actually using hydroxychloroquine in the early days, but then the data clearly showed that it didn't work. Even today, there's been so many meta-analyses that have now been done that clearly high quality, not bullshit meta-analyses, putting together crappy studies together does not make it a meta-analysis. And so, you know, we have now had multiple studies that have shown that hydroxychloroquine doesn't work that ivermectin has little to no effect. And actually, there are early treatments that do work. For example, we have, there's uh, uh, fluvoxamine, which is actually a, a, a drug that was used for a different purpose that some doctors started using off-label, then got some... And again, people were doing this before the EUA. So again, I, I get the point that it's easy to come up with that narrative, but we've been using steroids from day one. We still use steroids. And they were able to pass an EUA. So I don't under sorry, not to break the narrative, but the data is, is clear. That's not what happened. What happened was that there were people, and I'm not going to name these specific people to amplify them, but there were people that were using this to enrich themselves. And they were using, you know, by my version of the zinc, by my, ver- by the way, vitamin D does not reduce uh, outcomes. What we know now is that people that are deficient in vitamin D, if they get COVID, they actually have worse outcomes. So it's actually restoring uh, your vitamin D stores, which, by the way, if people talked about that and vitamin D on social media, they were banned and censored. 
but they didn't talk about it in that Same way. They said, connection. just take vitamin D, don't take the vaccine. You don't need I, it, just take vitamin That's what I think they were referring I got uh, Mike Benz up on stage. Uh, if uh, you want to say something, Mike, yeah, you got your hand up. You can go ahead and speak. Great. Yep. Yep. Great. So I only have about uh, eight minutes here, and then I got to jump to uh, my next thing here. But I, I wanted to just see if there was anybody who has any opposition whatsoever to what's in today's Twitter files dropped about the government, uh, the U.S. federal government's role in subsidizing the censorship of all things COVID-19. You have a situation here where you have four entities who were deputized by the Department of Homeland Security, as well as partnered with HHS and NIH. All four of these entities received millions of dollars from the federal government. All four engaged in mass flagging of 66 discrete narratives covering what people were saying about masks, what people were saying about vaccines, what people were saying about mandates, and then a catch-all category for random conspiracy theories of someone denigrated the good name of Bill Gates or whatnot, or the, or the WEF. This was a government-funded censorship campaign of criticism to government policy. This is the sort of thing that, that the U.S. State Department would pursue sanctions against if another country did it, uh, insofar as it being an attack on independent journalism and undermining the basic tenets of democracy. So is there a single person on this speaker panel in the next seven minutes uh, who can who can try to steel man the disaster of the scandal that just broke today? Yes, um, I'd Mike, like I to, on the basis of natural immunity. Natural immunity was something that was purely blocked by the censors in order to increase the revenue of the pharmaceutical companies. It was well known. It was well understood from the beginning that SARS-CoV-2 arrived that once somebody had been infected, they would build up natural immunity. It was also known at an early stage that that natural immunity was equivalent to some of the vaccine immunity because the vaccine immunity was very short-lived. That was dangerous and that had no way or shape or form to be allowed to be blocked in the face of protecting the United States, the UK or anywhere. So, Mike, right. um, well, it sounds we like you're agreeing I, I'm, I'm, before yeah. you came on. Hold sure. on a second. Um, I, I gave like an explanation of how, you know, this whole uh, apparat, um, censorship apparatus began through CISA and whatnot ahead of the 2020 election. And then it was still used by these same groups for COVID. So maybe you can talk about how that took place or expand on That's that. That's true. And that is part of what you know was in today's drop on, on the virality project. The virality project, it was a COVID censorship consortium that grew out of an election censorship consortium. But the specific subgroups within the virality project Man, you guys, were, you guys were involved amazing. in the censorship of COVID before COVID-19 was even called COVID-19, back when it was called the coronavirus in January 2020. Remember, the public was only became aware of COVID in December 2019. In January 2020, Graphica, a U.S. Department of Defense-funded social media analytics and network mapping group, as well as the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensics Research Lab, which is now growth of NATO, were both deployed to censor online opinions basically creating taxonomies of political discourse in conjunction with NATO's hybrid warfare group, the Center of Excellence, uh, it was called NATO Hybrid COE. In January 2020, they were censoring origins of COVID discourse on the internet from the U.S. to Europe and, and even and even in, in peripheral countries. They were mapping it by region, by political subgroup. Uh, they were chopping up uh, hashtags and narratives into specific AI, machine-readable 
censorable at scale um, uh, uh, topic modeling graphs. This was done by now, – now, remember, you had the U.S. military who was actually intimately involved in the administration of warp speed. But you had this parallel, uh, basically, foreign policy establishment funding to the censorship of a position that was just recently endorsed by none other, none other than the director of the FBI. So, so what you have right now is the, is the creation of an apparatus for control over noble lies uh, in Western civilization in a way that didn't even really exist when you had legacy media that had a sort of cozy backdoor relationship from the 1940s up until the, 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 the privatized Internet. What you have now is something extremely dangerous because you can create this network between the national security state, the private sector, and you can modulate narratives using AI in a way that you couldn't reach into the desk of dinner homes in the 1950s to do this. If this is not stopped now, we're never going to be able to stop it. And yeah, you, you have the same groups that, uh, that this apparatus was built around for uh, specifically for the 2020 election. And, the, and then once we're past that, uh, they have the same groups, Stanford University, Stanford University of Washington, and Graphica now working on COVID. They were working on both things. So it's, it's always the same people pretty much. Well, right. And not only that, those two universities received a joint $3 million grant from the National Science Foundation just months after the election. And, but it's much bigger than that now. While Stanford and UW took the lead, and it was also Harvard and MIT, Berkeley Data Lab, there were a bunch of also-rans involved in, in the COVID censorship story. But it spiked after the 2020 election. You know, I've documented 42 U.S. colleges and universities who have received National Science Foundation funding for the creation of digital dashboards to track COVID misinformation for the purpose of getting that content scr- you know, uh, scrubbed from the Internet. Uh, they're using academia as a censorship mercenary army, uh, and they're outsourcing it so that it doesn't look like the government is doing it itself. But the government is providing the backbone of the funding. It's $40 million in the past 18 months. I mean, I got to run to this meeting, but I just wanted to sure. drop a few of those facts and figures. Uh, everyone have a, have a great Fantastic. day. Thanks, for joining us. Thanks, Mike. So one, one thing that uh, Mike mentioned as far as the government funding in the 2020 National Defense Authorization Act, it, it it's explicitly gave the Office of Director of National Intelligence and the Department of Defense the authorization to give out grants and contracts to academia and private uh, uh, groups for social media misinformation. So that, that is, uh, that is correct. It didn't label how much money, but it gave, they set up this joint uh, sort of uh, project with office of director, national intelligence and department of defense to set up sort of, sort of this social media war room and uh, hand out, you know, millions of dollars to all these entities that Mike's talking about, and all these, uh, and academia was part and of. They that. used this to suppress legitimate journalism conducted by either independent news organizations or foreign state-funded organizations like RT, which you know reported on the lockdowns, for example, because that wasn't very well covered in the uh, mainstream press. And so, when you know, whenever say some big riot happened and a bunch of people got beat up by police, you know, RT would be on the case, they'd be on the ball, reporting on it, showing video. That, too, was suppressed because they wanted to suppress this narrative that people were opposed to the lockdowns. I mean, that's why we didn't see a lot of mainstream coverage of uh, all these marches. You know, tens of thousands of people would come out in Australia and London, in, in, in Brussels, you know, in all these other many, many places 
where none of that would get any coverage at all because it would fuel vaccine hesitancy. And they would claim that, you know, because RT was reporting on it, that the Russian media or that the Russian state was uh, fueling uh, anti-vax conspiracy theories. Now, none of that was conspiracy theory. People were genuinely, you know, uh, feeling fucking oppressed by the fact that they couldn't travel, that they couldn't go to school, their kids were, were, were locked out. You know, I mean, this this is stuff that destroyed tens of thousands, possibly millions of businesses worldwide, you know, the lockdowns, not the pandemic, but the lockdowns. And this helped to usher in perhaps the greatest transfer of wealth from the middle class to the corporations, right? Big companies like Amazon, Walmart, Target, they got hugely rich because they were not locked down, whereas everybody else was. If you ran a mom and pop store, you ran a a small restaurant or a gym or a bar or, or anything like a cafe, you know, you were locked down, you were shut out. But if you're a big company, 100% 100% you'd be totally fine in operating. Starbucks could operate, for instance, because they would have you know, delivery services. Th- these are, are amenities that are not available to small businesses. So every single, you know, the middle class was greatly impacted by this, by this, this suppression of free speech of people being genuinely you know, concerned about their, their rights being taken away from them. People lost their jobs for speaking out. And, and all of this was suppressed under the guise that it was protecting democracy because, oh my God, the Russians are talking about it, and also to suppress vaccine malinformation or disinformation, stuff that's actually true, right? For instance, like I said, protests happening, can't talk about it because, my God, that would fuel vaccine disinformation or vaccine hesitancy. So well, one important point that, uh, Ian made is that, you know, well, they, they're not supposed to, you know, the, the intelligence community cannot tell social media to, uh, censor misinformation of domestic accounts. Okay. That's where the line is drawn. However, if a story is mentioned on say RT, uh, they can say, oh, it's Russia disinformation or the Russians are amplifying, um, cons- and, and in their, in the Office of Director of National Intelligence uh, report on the uh, 2020 uh, election, uh, in there, they actually um, accused Russia as amplifying conspiratorial narratives around COVID-19. So uh, lab leak theory, for example, would, would fall under that. So if Russia was or RT was talking about this and people online uh, Americans were talking about it, then you were accused of spreading, you know, Russia disinformation. And that's how they got around of able, uh, able to censor um, Americans because they labeled it with Russia disinformation. I just posted uh, my sort of um, master post at the top and in, in honor of the three year anniversary here, it links to a lot of the record information that Ian mentioned around lockdowns, the impacts on kids, and everything else. So, I have a question. Ian, we're at uh, number 15. Uh, really quickly. I don't quickly. know if you want to go or you want me to keep going. Yeah, go, go Can ahead, I ask Liza. a question? Yeah, go for this. I, so, I, once again, I really do not think censorship's appropriate at all. How, how do you deal with propaganda, though? And how, how do you define propaganda? And Because I think that that is a pertinent question. Um, and we're going to have to figure out how to manage it because I think it propaganda does drive pe- people to make poor decisions based on fear. So I'm, I'm curious to know what people think of that. So are you talking about propaganda by the U.S. government or a- any government, including any government, including yeah. the U.S. government? 
the the more important question is what do you mean by manage it right that's the that's the key issue exactly well that's my that's my question so, so... well the, the government should not manage it at all that's just it's good rule of thumb well, that the government stay out of this altogether yeah, yeah, but I think that's what, the what about thing. private companies so so let's say five years from now AI is going to be good enough to essentially make videos of let's say Donald Trump murdering someone and somebody's may create that it's going to look a hundred percent legitimate and post and they can post it on Twitter should Twitter have the right to you know censor that or I don't know, Ian, Ian there was this picture it. that you made viral yesterday that yeah, you, you made go yeah, viral, yeah. right? It was uh, Biden falling down the stairs. That was a crazy scene that someone captured on photo. Is that where you got it, Ian? <laughs> <laughs> I made that. We were, Ian and I were having fun yesterday uh, using Midjourney 5 to uh, to do all the stuff recently. I made and, that. Uh, yeah, and he, it went viral. Benny Johnson tweeted it out. I think it's got you know millions of views now, so that's fun. It showed Biden yeah, yeah. basically I mean, that's stumbling a, at the bottom of the stairs. I don't know. It, that's just so, touching the stairs. Where are we going to be in oh, five wow. years? Ian, do you remember that uh, tweet I sent you? The last thread I did, it was on uh, this uh, woman named Shelby Pearson. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those not have not heard of this woman, she was the election czar ahead of the 2020 election. And uh, in one interview she gave to NPR, she was asked by the uh, reporter, what do you do about domestic misinformation? And is that as big of a threat uh, as foreign um, disinformation? And her answer was, well, of course, the government believes in free speech. But But, uh, if we see that... What's I up? said I love it when, but you know, it's like I love free speech. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't support censorship. Yeah. but yeah, okay. Yeah. So yeah, so we believe in in a you know a healthy debate and freedom of speech. However, <laughs> if we see something that is uh, uh, Russia dis- or foreign uh, malign influence is the new catchphrase now. Uh, we will, and her quote: "We, the government, will do everything we can to." manage that information i love that so all they do is label it as foreign malign influence which we by the way anyone doesn't know and i'll promote my latest thread it's twin or it's pinned to the top of my profile we have you know this whole disinformation or the dhs disinformation governance board that was disbanded well it's already opened up under a new name at a new department. It's called the Foreign Malign Influence Center under the Office of Director of National Intelligence, and it's operating today. And that's how they operate to manage domestic, quote, misinformation, labeling it as foreign. In the UK, the branch of the army, our own British army, had a special regiment set up called the 77th Regiment that was totally brought on in the beginning of the pandemic in March of 2020. They appeared, well, the the colonel of this regiment appeared on television next to Boris Johnson and said that the army were there to support the British people throughout the pandemic. We were later told, found out, splashed across all the national newspapers that this 77th Regiment never left their desks. They were all there monitoring social media, monitoring communications by British people to make sure that no information went out that the government felt should not go out. And that was the British Army that did it. Ed, you wanted to jump in? Ed? I guess not. Um, Go for it, Ian. Do you want to carry on with the... Uh, yeah, ma- uh, name redacted. You can continue. I'm still doing my, uh, I'm still writing stuff. All right. So number 15, 
of Matt Taibbi's thread. In one email to Twitter, Virality Project addressed what it called the vaccine passport narrative, saying concerns over such programs have driven a larger anti-vaccination narrative about the loss of rights and freedoms. This was framed as a misinformation event. And in the screenshot, it says, hi, Twitter team. So this is probably one of their, their weekly emails. Uh, <laughs> see attached for the latest Virality Project weekly briefing. This week, we focus on backlash to the Krispy Kreme vaccine promotion among right-wing and anti-vax users, spiking COVID-19 cases used to cast doubt on vaccine hesitancy, and an online event from anti-vax and QAnon individuals. Additionally, we'd like to, we'd also like to highlight our recent analysis on the vaccine passport narrative. Uh, concern over vaccination records have been a focus of online vaccination, vaccine conversation and have driven a larger anti-vaccination narrative about the loss of rights and freedoms. So that was in their report for that week. Um, number 16, Virality Project routinely framed real testimonials about side effects as misinformation. We, we just talked about that a little while ago. From true stories of blood clots from AstraZeneca vaccines to a New York Times story about vaccine recipients who contracted the blood disorder thrombocytopenia. Am I pronouncing that correct, Dr. Danish? Yep, yep, that's correct. It's TTP, yep, that's right. So uh, in this tweet number 16, uh, they're talking about basically, again, labeling true stories as uh, misinformation, and they focus on uh, blood clots from the AstraZeneca AstraZeneca uh, vaccine. There was a New York Times story. So a tweet from Naomi Wolf, author and conspiracy theorist, was picked up by an Australian anti-lockdown page, reposted in Spanish language, alternative news channel, Telegram. So, I mean, they're just listing a bunch of uh, examples. So in the first screenshot, it talks about safety concerns about the AstraZeneca vaccine as countries suspended uh, batches of the vaccine after some recipients experience blood clots. And they highlight true stories of people experiencing blood clots after receiving the AstraZeneca vaccine have prom- prompted multiple governments to temporarily suspend vaccines. So even though this is a true story, people that were tweeting about it were uh, censored or banned or accounts suspended. Um and then on the bottom, the takeaways, increased doubts in one manufacturer's vaccine may lead to hesitancy about vaccination overall. So that's the key takeaway here is even though there were problems with the AstraZeneca vaccine and uh, European countries were suspending that vaccine, they still censored online posts from people talking about that because it increased the doubts or it led to hesitancy about vaccination overall. So people were not allowed to discuss side effects that were true and, you know, suspending of a vaccination or a vaccine that was causing problems. Um, Can I just say that was particularly difficult for the UK because the UK had no alternative at the time. The UK just had AstraZeneca. We we started earlier, as you know, and AstraZeneca was our homegrown vaccine. And as you rightly say, I think it was Germany and then Belgium uh, were refusing it after uh, blood clots. And I think some myocarditis early cases started appearing um, and we had no alternative. That was the only vaccine we had at the time. 
Although although Pfizer yeah, did so, Pfizer okay. did come into the UK, Money Penny, uh, as soon as the US got it out. Yeah, later, later. <laughs> yeah, but the point the point here is that th- there were real side effects that people were experiencing to such a large degree that these European countries suspended this particular vaccine. So why is that? Anyone who has any argument about w- w- if the government what they did or was okay or social media companies censoring people if you think that's okay well do you think it's okay if an actual true story of a vaccine that no i don't i totally agree with you i'm saying the british decided that was the reason they would stop british people talking about it yeah yeah we're 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 on the same page here i'm just like making a point of that anyone who thinks censorship was fine or whatever you actually have a case here where a specific vaccine was causing problems. It was to such a degree that European countries were suspending the rollout of this vaccine. Yet, if people online talked about that, they were censored because it, they, their thing was it was affecting, um, it was causing vaccine hesitancy of the other vaccine, Pfizer and whatnot. And then just to add a bit of balance, because um, Dr. Danish has gone, um in the UK, though, there were, this information in terms of AstraZeneca causing blood clots was put in the newspaper. So it wasn't unlike the United States where it was complete censorship. We did have this information getting out there in some form. Right. Only yeah. after the Germans refused it. Only after Germany refused to buy it. And tweet number 16 highlights that, that there was news stories about it yet even though it was it was accepted that this vaccine caused problems and there was, you know, newspaper publications talking about it, you still weren't allowed to talk about it online. They didn't want that story amplified. That's my point. So if people were reposting those articles and they were getting they were being amplified, you were censored. That's the problem. Yeah, I had many Facebook posts totally taken down just for mentioning it. There you go. So tweet number 17, by March of 2021, Twitter personnel were aping Virality Project language describing campaigns against vaccine passports, fear of mandatory immunizations, and misuse of official reporting tools as potential violations. So this is when uh, Twitter finally expanded their, um, I guess, guidelines on what they would, uh, type of posts that they would takedown so they highlighted in this picture misuse of officials official reporting tools and statistical data to draw false population level inferences about the safety of vaccines and then can't any uh, campaigns against vaccine passports inciting fear about mandatory immunizations so you know th- i remember around that time a lot of that was discussed online so anyone just having a discussion about that or any tweets that went viral or whatnot talking about oh, they're going to do vaccine passports or mandatory immunizations, those posts were taken down. And uh, yeah, in March of 2021, Twitter expanded that. Uh, number 18, this so, actual report... Name, just a question. On the um, uh, fear of mandatory immunization, is that, does that mean they were basically trying to censor anyone who was afraid that the vaccine would be compulsory on all? They were they were censoring people discussing this online in a public forum, discussing their fear of of man, of uh, vaccines becoming mandatory. Just just public discussion of it, like oh they're gonna they might do this, they might they might do vaccine passports and 
uh, mandatory vaccines. And if there was discussion about that, then they were taken down. So number 18, this echoed a report to Twitter by the Global Engagement Center regarding Russia-linked accounts. While this account posts legitimate and accurate COVID-19 updates, it posts content that attacks Italian politicians, the EU, and the U.S. And this screenshot is of a Twitter account. um, And it says the same thing in the screenshot. While they post legitimate and accurate COVID-19 updates and news stories, it also posts contents that attack Italian politicians, the EU, and the U.S. So because even though this person, whoever it was, they had, uh, looks like there was, this account did 340,000 tweets, had 7,100, uh, sorry, 32,000 followers. Um, and this person was posting true information, but adding in their attacks on politicians and these countries, they were banned. Um, number 19, the same global engagement center report found in the Twitter files identified former Italian prime minister Giuseppe Conte and former Italian Democrat party secretary, Nicola Zingaretti, who's been compared to Bernie Sanders as highly connective accounts in a Russia linked network. So, you know, like we've seen in everything, they, they draw Russia in here a lot. I mean, just number 20, the Virality Project helped pioneer the so just just the I think engaging of disinformation by audience response. If the post vaccine death of a black woman named Dreni Keys in Virginia went unnoticed, inspired mostly anti-vaccine comments on local media, it became a disinformation event. So. This is an example of um, the screenshot says notable vaccine side effect and adverse event stories. So the death of this uh, uh, elderly black woman after receiving the Pfizer vaccine in Virginia has received attention in anti-vax groups alongside reporting in local news outlets. The story with the headline, Gleister grandmother dies within hours of receiving COVID vaccine has received over 14,800 interactions. The majority of top comments on the story are anti-vaccine. So that's an example of someone with um, adverse uh, event after receiving the vaccine was posted on social media and was taken down. Number 21, the Virality Project warned against people just asking questions, in quotes, implying it was a tactic commonly used by spreaders of misinformation. It also described a worldwide rally of freedom planned over Telegram as a disinformation event. So the screenshots, they're talking about Tucker Carlson in here. Tucker Carlson's claims have repeatedly found purchased with uh, right-wing politicians who played an important role in the vaccine conversation and the spread of false and misleading claims. And they talk about Senator Ron Johnson appeared on Carlson's show to discuss why he was not getting the vaccinate was not getting vaccinated in a clip rife with misinformation about vaccine deaths. This clip received over 100,000 views and 2000 shares on Facebook. Senator Johnson also promoted hard to verify claims of vaccine injury when he tweeted quotes from Carlson's interview with the mother of a child in the Pfizer vaccine trial. In June 2021, he held an event for individuals to testify about adverse reactions to COVID-19. 
This The event was subject to criticism from medical professionals. However, when pressed about it, Senator Johnson stated that he was not anti-vaccine and was just, quote, asking questions, a tactic commonly used by spreaders of misinformation to deflect culpability. So, so Nam, that's an important point there. Um, so you can see, like, for example, Senator Johnson obviously had some kind of questions about the vaccine. Now, one could argue that because he was the pressure he was put into by the other members of, of you know, government, the media, the only way he could raise these concerns was through for framing it as a question. But isn't this a problem? If you were anti-vaccine, and this is towards the people on the right as well, why didn't they, because a lot of them now are coming out and saying it, but why didn't they come out and say it as, they, as it is their duty to their people who elected them? Well, I mean, the the problem here is like if 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 a vaccine's rolled out and there's suddenly a spike in deaths or whatever, well, what's wrong with investigating that or asking questions like, well, should we look at this more and, or look at the details like what's causing this? Is there something wrong with the vaccine? So I'm saying, you know, that that's all there's. No, no, I get that. But no, you're you're, saying, you're right, Suleil. I'll I'll say one thing, which is like we, you can count on one hand the number of politicians who actually stood up, stuck their neck out for anything anything related to covid uh my group and i are going downtown in two weeks to dc we're flying from all over the country we have uh, meetings one-on-ones with individual senators and congressmen and everything else there we're going to tell our stories and convey to them some of the things we want to see done so this doesn't happen again but i tell you it was far and few between i can count on one hand the number of congressional representatives who would take my calls who would listen to this and who would, you know, in, you know, actually stick their neck out on anything, whether it was lockdowns or vaccines. Yeah, I know Dr. Martin has got 20 sheriffs behind him because he cannot get senators to actually put their name on the line. Although they verbally offer support, it's only the sheriffs. He's managed to get 20 sheriffs to support the legal case that Dr. Martin and uh, his fellow doctor, I'm sorry, I forgot the name of it, that they are doing against this in the same way I think as Justin is doing. So, And and for me, that is the bigger problem. And because we have a lot of uh, conservatives on stage, the issue is this, look, like a lot, and, and Justin's uh, uh, confirmed this, that there's a lot of conservative politicians, a lot of conservative social media personalities who did not speak out against the vaccine, at best just framed it as a question to try and not get in trouble or to not lose their platform. And haven't they equally failed their people because they also knew they may, there was a problem and yet continued to stay silent? Jim? You, oh, Justin, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was saying, you know, it, I, I talk about in my book how it's a funny thing when mortality, what it does to people. Right. I mean, and this is this is probably the kindest interpretation I have, which is death is on the line. And that was made very clear from day one, you know, three years ago when they came to the, the pulpit and said we're all locking down. And, and uh, when, when that happens, politicians are, are very adverse, uh, you know, to sticking their neck out on something that. You know, they could see could end in someone's life one way or another. So they just stay out of it. There really was not a lot of incentive unless you had really core principles on, hey, the, your First Amendment rights are being infringed on. Hey, you probably shouldn't do that censorship. Hey, these mandates really seem out of touch with, you know, the principles of uh, free congregation and everything else there and freedom of religion. But, yeah, it was it was super frustrating to see just how few people stuck their necks out. But uh, if I had to chalk up the kindest interpretation mortality does crazy things to people and they 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 make very selfish decisions uh, dr sabine you got your hand up 
Yeah, no, I, I, I just wanted to, and thank you for having me. Um, I just wanted to say, you know, it, it's really, it, it should not be political. I'm seeing both conservative and liberals as patients. And, you know, unfortunately, it's a shame that, you know, the conservatives have kind of been the ones talking about vaccines because I feel that the liberals are now afraid to talk about the the vaccine side effects because it has become political. But I will tell you, um, there's a lot of politicians on both sides that have reached out to me because of my research that I've done on the microbiome. We were the lab that showed that found COVID in the stools. We were the lab that found a marker of susceptibility in COVID in that bifidobacteria was absent in severe COVID and present in people that were exposed to COVID but never had COVID. Um, and so bifidobacteria was kind of like the focus of looking at bifidobacteria is the bacteria that is in your probiotics. We discovered early on as I started testing patients before and after. So these are the same individuals that we looked at at baseline. We looked at their microbiome and then we looked at their microbiome after vaccination. And we discovered the first thing that started getting killed was the Uh, you know, auto- hey, you can you hear me? Yeah, you just broke up for a bit. Yeah, sorry. sorry. Continue. No, so this this bacteria that is linked with autoimmune processes, you know, asthma, Crohn's disease, Lyme disease, invasive cancer. We just are publishing data that shows that people that have zero bifidobacteria, you know, are at high risk of of having cancer. So bifidobacteria really is the beginning to look into the microbiome. When I started seeing that, and then at the same time, I started seeing stools of, you know, physicians that were having vaccine injuries, people that were gastroenterologists, like, you know, uh, that at Cedar sinai and all of a sudden were debilitated. They couldn't practice. And I looked at their microbiome. They had zero bifidobacteria. So that became kind of like a focus for me. And I started speaking up really early because I started seeing these symptoms. And, and I'm just going to share a few of the symptoms because I am seeing so many people with the vaccine injuries. And those are heart rate, you know, increased heart rate right after a vaccine, migraines, chest pain, shortness of breath, fatigue, brain fog, change in bowel movement, new onset of Parkinson's, ALS, cancer in the young. I have a 40, I've been in practice 30 years practically in GI. I have a 48 year old who's never drank alcohol, never used any drugs, clean, healthy, skinny, has pancreatic cancer stage four after four vaccines. Now, probably it's not related, but we have to pay attention because in 30 years, I have never seen a 48-year-old with with terminal cancer so fast. So these are the things that, and, and so for me, when I see my work on the microbiome, I say, well, it does make sense, right? It does make sense that if you have invasive cancer is linked with zero bifidobacteria, and bifidobacteria seems to be this big trillion-dollar issue of probiotics, maybe we need to focus because the microbiome is going to tell us what's going to happen in the future. You know, and, and I hate to bring back autism again because every time I bring back autism, people think I'm an anti-vaxxer. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I put vaccines to market. I've done a dozen clinical trials for pharma bringing vaccines to market. These are not your typical vaccines. This is a new technology that we have never seen before. And if we don't pay attention to the side effects on both sides of the politics and conservatives and liberals, we are going to lose humanity. And I hate to be dramatic, 
But unfortunately, I we are in 1980. Autism was one in 2000. It's now one in 30. Cancer. We just saw the data increased in the young. Aggressive cancer increased in the young. This is becoming the new normal. Increased cancer, increased neurological problems, increased Parkinson's. You know, this needs to be paid attention to because in 10 years from now, you're going to have a lot more complications. To me, the microbiome is wide open right now. So all viruses are penetrating because there's an imbalance in the microbiome. We need to close that that colonic leakage to stop these viruses from penetrating because our immunity is our gut. And if we don't pay attention to that, we've lost. So I tried to speak up. By the way, I spoke up on one of the papers. I published a paper, Hypothesis, Ivermectin Increases Bifidobacteria. That was a hypothesis, right? I can write whatever I want on a hypothesis. It's a hypothesis. I posted it on Twitter. I got shut down for like six hours, okay? It took like some, you know, friend of mine who supported Twitter to get me back on Twitter. So, and and then on top of that, now my paper was um, tri- triggered a critique by some no names on a website called PubPeer who basically uh, decided that I quoted some papers that were retracted. And because I quoted some papers that are retracted, that paper should be an expression of concern. So on my paper, if you look at the hypothesis of ivermectin, you will see expression of concern. And the expression of concern is because I quoted retracted papers that said ivermectin worked. Now, those papers were probably retracted by the same people that are censoring, you know, us from speaking. So my question is, it's a hypothesis. If I want to put Santa Claus is exist. It's my hypothesis. I can quote whatever I want in a hypothesis. It should not be an expression of concern. So this tells you the amount of corruption and the amount of censorship that is even occurring at the academic level with the journals. And by the way, that same website is attacking every single one of my papers, including one paper where we were the first lab in the world to identify whole genome sequencing of COVID in the stools, which, by the way, led the National Institute of Standard and the government to look at the septic tanks. So that paper is a is a landmark study that took six months of peer-reviewed by doctors and scientists to criticize before it got up into the publications. The fact that there was there's someone criticizing that paper after it went through peer review and that person is anonymous is telling of what's going on in the medical field. So now I'm asking you, why would any scientist or physician want to do anything in this environment? Why would I want to come out with any more information in science on the microbiome when this kind of pressure is going on? Do we not think that interfering with research and science is interfering with everybody? It's interfering with research interferes with everyone. I'm sorry to have spoken so much, but essentially I'm very passionate about this. And this is a topic that's really dear to my heart. And if anything, if I'm exposing the corruption instead of exposing the microbiome, well, be it. But we need to expose both. And Sabine, thanks for thanks for the comment. Thank you for because that. In, this is what today's drop is about. Academia also being in cahoots to make sure that they censor. So, and you're quite right. To in order to basically get published, 
in academia, you have to follow the normal narrative. And hence why I was speaking against doctors who didn't do that and basically proliferated and got other people banned on social media or various other avenues to proliferate certain ideas and ideologies. And so I commend you that because I do have friends who were in similar situations to you who basically did risk their jobs and were on the front line because they're willing to speak out about this. So, yeah, I commend you a lot. And you, you have... Only a yeah, single voice and, is allowed. Yeah, and by the way, um, my friends in academia are rooting me. You know, I'm friends with a lot of doctors at Harvard, MD Anderson, Yale, you know, Mayo Clinic. You know, we're all part of this group, right? Because we see each other at meetings. We talk about it. And they basically... I'm in a different position because I'm independent. I've been doing research as a, you know, in clinical trials for 30 years as an independent. I'm not part of a hospital. A hospital doesn't tell me what to do. I don't need to be, you know, following the guidelines of a hospital. We have our own standard operating procedures to function independently of the hospital. But my, friend, my friends are rooting me on because they, they need me to be a voice. And, and behind me is thousands and thousands of physicians. You know, that paper on the hypothesis of ivermectin got 50... 6,000 views and reads. That's enormous. So there's a lot of doctors paying attention and a lot of scientists paying attention. And if I'm their voice, and I've, and by the way, all this research is paid by me. Nobody is paying. I didn't get an NIH grant. I didn't get a hospital grant. I didn't get a pharma grant. I paid for it with my own savings, my husband and I. So this is, there's no benefit for me to 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 say one data or another. In fact, it's even worse for me to come out with the data that's opposing the narrative because I'm in the public's eye now and, you know, I'm a target. So, you know, but it needs to be told. It needs to be said. Nobody wants to be the person that is shaking the beehive of pharma. But the beehive of pharma needs to be, you know, shaken in a way because we are killing the microbiome. We need to come back and say we're overdoing. We're overdoing with antibiotics. We're overdoing with vaccinations. Perhaps we're, we're definitely doing a new technology on the whole world that is technically should not be, should have been done in, in, in quarters. You know, maybe do one country and see how that's doing. You know, isolate one country and see how they're doing. But in, instead, okay. it's everybody. So that's it. I'd like to go to Jim and then I'd like to go back to Name Redacted to continue reading the files. Jim? Yeah. Hey, I, by the way, Sabine, that's just amazing stuff you're talking about. And I think you're right on target. But, you know, I want to it kind of touches on this issue of propaganda. Someone was mentioning it earlier. I think maybe. Well, I can't remember who was. But anyway. Listen, uh, they they, they were saying, so how do you deal? Oh, I know, Liza, maybe you were asking, how do you deal with propaganda? Well, the thing is, you don't. I mean, there is a way there's an indirect way to deal with it. It's called the education of critical thinking. You know, most propaganda is illogical. It uses, uh, uh, it breaks the basic rules of logic, the law of non-contradiction, the law of causality. Uh, It uses weird language. Uh, He had to make certain that uh, the journals got sold, but he didn't have enough editors to uh, deal with it. So that thus, now you have peer review. Now, I, I, I haven't validated that yet, but I do trust uh, Eric Weinstein. But th- this is the issue. We are in a place. And what is so important about this? And, and, and by the way, I have deep respect, Dinesh and 
Liza and all the people that I might disagree with on things who did all this work with uh, having to deal with patients and trying to figure out in the early days of COVID when we had no freaking clue what was going on. I have deep respect for having gone through that. But the reality is that <laughs> there is all of that is irrelevant when it comes to speech. Like there are consequences when people say stupid things or wrong things. But the way we deal with that consequence in a free society, which is the real one of the great innovations of Western democracies, is the ability to speak out and make assertions until they can be negated for, for whatever reason, at the risk of being negated even. And what we are seeing happening increasingly, and in the United States, the trigger may have been Donald Trump. And, you know, he says some wild things, and it's problematic. But the thing is, and, and he's been effective at it, too, in certain ways politically. And so people are worried about that. But the thing is, you don't deal with that by shutting down speech. You deal with that by teaching critical thinking. In the United States and in many parts of the West, and, and actually it's seeping into Asia and other places as well, there's this demand, for example, to uh, deal with – this is why critical race theory and the transgender issue are so important. Not because we need to be upset with people who believe in critical race theory or we need to not care about race and be white supremacists or we need to hate trans people. Those aren't the problems here, and those aren't the results when we push back on things. Those are all issues that are designed – to, um, to impose a way of thinking upon people because someone else has a certain way of thinking about it. That is as bad and maybe in some cases worse than any COVID misinformation that happened. But here's the thing. To deal with that in a free society, you, it, it, as we've seen here in the United States, you need parents to go up to school boards and say, no, we don't want critical race theory taught. What's the pushback on that? Well, not only do you have teachers unions telling parents they're stupid, but you've, you've now got a Department of Justice that is out investigating parents who would push against that. This is the, it, it, so this, this, this problem that we see revealed in this particular uh, Twitter files is part, it's on steroids, part of a bigger issue that we have. The reality is that the great, as I've said before on these spaces, the greatest amount of misinformation that we get in volume, not always in consequence, is what we call elections. And elections are filled with mis- and disinformation, however we want to qualify those terms, even qualify their usage, which I think is, is somewhat suspect. But we, we have to allow this kind of speech, and we have to combat it through real education. In the United States, we have the government's Government is running education almost entirely. It is almost exclusively a monopoly. You have some outlets for people, and those outlets are increasing a little bit after COVID, but again, not substantially. We have government teaching children. We have government employing uh, methodology, as we just learned about today, and we keep learning about in the Twitter files, to adjust, to massage and to direct the conversation in an entire culture. And the American First Amendment and the whole premise behind American freedom is antithetical to any attempt 
that that is being undertaken this way. It should be illegal. We should pass, if we have to reassert this in the United States or anywhere else, we should pass laws to make it a criminal offense for any government official or any elected official to seek an opportunity to design, to massage, or to direct the American conversation or any conversation anywhere. It is by its very nature criminal because it is by its very nature suspect. You might be right on an issue. Like we didn't know what was going on at the beginning of COVID. And, uh, and what Dinesh was saying, listen, I, I, I totally sympathize and even empathize with the frustrations that he shared about you know, having time to deal with patients and having to work through this. But the reality is that not all that information was correct. We know that more than ever. Someone talked about vitamin D earlier. Well, I, I, heard, I listened to John Campbell go through a recent uh, meta study on vitamin D. And it's not just that we need to get people up to levels. I mean, what, what, we had a racial issue against black people related to COVID. Well, I think we know now that since folks, black folks have a lower vitamin D level in Northern Hemisphere, um, that, that, that that was a big factor and why it seemed like a lot of black folks here in the United States were getting COVID. It may be the entire reason, I don't know. But what I'm saying is when you shut down any conversation, good, bad, and different, malicious or benign, you have destroyed the ability to deal with the factors of human life that matter. And with all the discussions Jim, Jim, you're right. on, you're quite, on methodologies and stuff, Jim, that's fine. Jim, you're quite, the, this shutdown is critical. Yeah, Go ahead. Jim, no, it's a good point. Um, and what you'll see is in the Twitter files is more level, more types of this type of censorship. Nim, do you want to carry on with the um, with the next point that you run? Yeah. So tweet number twenty-two, almost always reportable. I, it encouraged it encouraged platforms to target people. It encouraged platforms to target people, not posts, using minority report style pre-crime logic describing repeat offenders like Robert Kennedy Jr. It spoke of a large volume of content that is almost always reportable. So uh, the Virality Project uh, reported, or in this report, in the screenshot, it says known repeat offenders. False or misleading posts from the accounts of well-known repeat offenders, such as Robert F. Kennedy Jr. or Sherry Tenpenny. This is a large volume of content that is almost always reportable. So they basically had targets on certain people that were they label as uh, repeat offenders of misinformation. And pretty much uh, what I would gather from that tweet is that these accounts like Robert F. Kennedy and um, this other woman were were basically shadow banned. That's my assumption on how they dealt with that as, as well as taking down tweets. Uh, Number 23, Virality Project was repeatedly extravagantly wrong in one email to twitter on misinformation it spoke of wanting to hone in on an increasingly popular narrative about natural immunity we just uh discussed that so let's see this was sent on june 2nd 2021 uh let me pull up the report for that and in this email it says hi twitter team please find attached the latest weekly briefing uh i'm zoe and i'll be taking okay This week, we were able to hone in on ongoing tactics and themes, including an increasingly popular narrative around natural immunity. 
So this was, let's see, June 2nd. So let me pull up their report on their website. Let's see what it talks about. So, so maybe this is the worst one because yeah. natural immunity was recognized in Russia and China where you were asked before you were jabbed whether or not you'd already had coronavirus or you thought you might have had it. And there was no attempt to do that in the United States, to my knowledge, and certainly not in the United Kingdom. So not only were you effectively wasting vaccination, because uh, most people, most doctors, medical people were aware a level of natural immunity would be afforded, but also you were not allowed to fly or have the same benefits, let's say, of going into certain restaurants or even leaving your house if you had natural immunity, which in all honesty was probably a stronger immunity than a there's, lot of people who have been vaccinated. There's evidence of this in a 2022 study by P. Nordstrom. It's published on The Lancet. It's a risk of SARS-CoV-2 reinfection and COVID-19. So the registry-based study, and I'm reading this right now. I'm just going to read the excerpt. Uh, on the total population of Sweden showed that natural immunity is associated with a 95% lower risk of reinfection. So yes, it is more effective, way more effective than any vaccine. The vaccines uh, at, at best are like 10%, right? And that was at its, you know, like last year. But now, you, you know, obviously they don't really work because they're new variants. However, natural immunity is actually really, really good. And there's proof of this. Like this is a peer-reviewed study. Yeah, I'm glad the Virality Project has all these weekly briefings up on their website because the, the details in this and the extents, the extent of what they went through and and the people they're highlighting is is uh, incredible here. So uh, this in their in their report, uh, this weekly briefing they're referring to in uh, tweet number 23 about natural immunity. Here's what they uh, highlighted. So first one, two new studies published last week furthered scientific understanding that immunity to the coronavirus lasts at least a year and improves over time, including after vaccination. The idea that natural immunity is sufficient in place of vaccination is a common and increasing popular talking point among anti-vaccine communities. And then they highlight um, a radio interview by Senator Rand Paul, where he announced that he would not receive the vaccine, citing natural immunity after his infection. Um, and then they they highlight a this week a post by anti-vaccine influencer Joseph Mercola shared a link to uh, Washington University's findings. Mercola comments, "This is good news for everyone except the vaccine manufacturers and health authorities who have said otherwise." And they're highlighting this post that received 2,800 likes. Um, it has also been shared by anti-vaccine and medical freedom groups across social media platforms. Mercola is a repeat offender whose website activity has repeatedly surfaced in our analysis research. So um, that's uh, one person that they focused on was Joseph Mercola. If anyone knows about him and wants to comment on that, feel free. If not, I'll, I'll see continue. if I can invite him up. Let me see if I can find him if he's online. Okay, cool. So let's see. Number 24. The Virality Project in April 2021 mistakenly described breakthrough infections as extremely rare events that should not be inferred to mean vaccines are ineffective. And in the screenshot, 
It says CDC reports 5,800 breakthrough cases of people getting coronavirus after vaccination. Some accounts have seized on this data to suggest that vaccines are ineffective. So they highlight a CDC report that approximately 5,800 fully vaccinated people have gotten infected with COVID-19. And then this was a real breakthrough because everybody was in the belief that if you were vaccinated, you wouldn't catch covid That was the way it had been portrayed. So when it actually came to light and it was made public and it had to be admitted that you would not be protected against catching COVID, you would simply be protected against getting seriously ill or hospitalised, particularly if you were in a high-risk group. That was a big change, a big breakthrough. Yeah, so what what they did was, even though the CDC was reporting on this, uh, you know, the Virality Project highlighted that Uh, What they said, some medical freedom Facebook groups and anti-vax activists have seized this data to suggest that vaccines are ineffective. Um, And then their takeaway, as journalists and medical professionals have urged the media, should emphasize the rarity of breakthrough infections when reporting on these extremely rare events. So, again, anyone who, even though this was a actual report from the CDC, uh, they did you know, shadow ban, suspend or censor people that were using that news to, you know, sort of, you know, amplify that, you know, the narrative at the time that if you got the vaccine, you could not uh, get infected, which we all know is false. It's a lie. They were all bullshit. All, yeah. Yeah. Everyone, <laughs> Fauci and Biden. And I mean, everyone was on, you know, TV, same talking points. If you get the vaccine, you're good. Yeah, Trump included. Yeah, said that last year, like late last year. It's just like, dude, stop! <laughs> just yep. stop! It's not gonna help you. Stop it! Like, I know you love Operation Warp Speed, and it, you know you think it makes you look good, but no, stop, please. It's it's wrong. It's it's bad. Yeah. It's a mistake. And by the way, I added the thing to the uh, the thing at the top, so you can actually read the study for yourself. The one I cited about how natural immunity does in fact work, ninety five percent. I mean, for me, the interesting point on that is this is the bullet point afterwards, which is kind of linked to what we were talking about earlier. The statistics have been discussed by well-informed epidemiologists and other infectious disease doctors on social media. Uh, So, again, and that was the argument I was making that it wasn't just the government, but this was actually something that was portrayed or proliferated throughout the internet or social media by doctors who wanted to create this specific narrative and therefore that's why i believe that they're as accountable as as the rest but anyway andrew thanks for joining us someone thought they'd lose their licenses uh if they were to speak the truth yeah yeah of course of course uh, but i'm talking about the ones who basically propagated the idea Uh, and andrew um thanks for joining us what's your uh, thoughts about the current twitter files drop I don't know. I've been busy working all day, so I sort of need to look through it. So um, give me like maybe 10 minutes and I'll, I'll have, maybe have some thoughts. You know, thank you. Um, I'm also just catching up, but I, I'm reading through them a bit as I'm waking up. And one thing that sort of struck me, uh, and I, you probably have discussed this already, but uh, the link between the vaccine passports as a, as a miss 
you know, uh, misinformation or whatever. Um, and sort of the idea that it's a right wing, uh, media narrative and, uh, and leads to vaccine hesitancy because it's people discussing freedom, uh, rights, fr- rights and freedoms. And I thought that was really, I don't know, that really struck me because that was one of the things that I personally, uh, during this whole period, it, it was one of the, the points that I had focused on and, and what I discussed because, um, I never personally really talked too much about the vaccine itself because I didn't find that to be my, my place as a, as someone who didn't have the, the background and expertise to comment on that. But, but something like the vaccine passport and, and people's rights and freedoms, I, I felt very strongly about. And so, um, you know, even the way that they're sort of characterizing it as just a, a record, um, that wasn't, that, that's really misingenuous, uh, in my view, because it wasn't really a, a vaccine record in the sense that, you know, you keep track of your early vaccinations and, and things like that, which is very different. This was a vaccine passport that allowed people to go into restaurants or not or public places and, and at least in many countries, including and jurisdictions, including mine. So I found that to be kind of a very dangerous narrative, wanting to shut down that discourse of people really talking about pre- freedom of movement and freedom uh, from surveillance. Because essentially, you know, uh, if you go to a, let's say, a restaurant and, and suddenly you're showing your a vaccine passport to enter that restaurant and, and the person who's with you is also showing it. So the, the amount of tracking just through that was, was very severe and to shed down any discourse about that, about surveillance, something that in the past has been a massive concern pre, pre COVID. I just uh, found that really striking and the, and the attempt to sort of smear that as something that is, you know, specifically right wing and to sort of politicize that. So that that's something that I thought was very kind of interesting here. And Joa, thanks for joining us. Um, What's your initial thoughts? Yeah, uh, I've been listening on and off um, since the space started. I had a couple calls I had to get on. But, you know, I have a very personal story. I I took the single jab. Six days later, developed a rash from head to toe. Uh, I figured it was um, a reaction. I was told it can't be from the vaccine. Uh, two months later, developed something called drop foot, where you can't you can't articulate your foot, so you kind of like flap it like a duck almost. And I wind up having that for like four months. Um, they gave me very, very, very high doses of, uh, I always forget if it's cortisone or cortisol, but whatever one that is, um, <clears throat> that they gave me. Um, I went to physical therapist. Physical therapist asked me if I had the single jab. Sorry, Joe, have you? Yeah, Joe, you, yeah, you cut out. I thought it was my phone. Sorry, guys, my uh, mic ran out of batteries. Yeah, continue. Yeah, you, you were talking about a single jab. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I took the, I went to the physical therapist, single, the, he asked me if I took the single jab, uh, said I, that's what I expected because I've seen many patients with the same problem. But on the other hand, I never contracted COVID. Uh, 
the symptoms I had went away. I do think the initial vaccines were a good thing. I don't think they were a bad thing. I know the evidence about the boosters didn't really do anything. So it's weird because I do have an injury, but I do think it helped. I never got it. I didn't put anyone else in danger. I traveled a lot during that time because, you know, Venice is really nice. when It's not crowded with tourists, for example. Um, so I wasn't opposed to it. So it's, I feel like I'm like a, a weird person because typically people get injured, be very anti, but there was many billions of people who were vac- vaccinated. Even people who take like medicine to control uh, their period, they have side effects, right? So we talk about these certain amount of people had certain symptoms and they're horrible symptoms, but there was many billions of people vaccinated. Like if you just look at the numbers and if it's 1% or 2%, that's still a lot of people that, that got injured. And I think that kind of makes it seem like it's all over the place when maybe it's not. There's too many people, though. I mean, it feels like it feels like the vaccine, like at this point, right? And I'm not talking about the early vaccine, which I do think was necessary, like the first batch. But nowadays, they keep pushing vaccines. And it's like even Bill Gates, I know everybody hates him. But even he's like, when Omicron came out, it meant that the vaccines were essentially useless because, uh, you know, if you're infected by Omicron, the chances of you being hospitalized are essentially so much lower uh, than anything else. And it offers natural immunity. It's it's like uh, getting the flu, right? It, sometimes it's just better to just get it instead of getting a shot, which may pose severe uh, 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 danger to your body if you know you, you take it poorly right like you, you get blood clots or you get a variety of issues like you get had a vaccine injury and i honestly think you should be suing the company over your vaccine injury because it wasn't advertised right so i mean the point of vaccines now at least for you know with regards to COVID, i don't think they're even necessary at this point it just feels like a grift like they keep trying to push it when it doesn't even actually do anything well, yeah, the only thing is, is that, to make calculation. Sorry, it's just like the Sage Committee, the government committee that advised the British politicians, was a committee of scientists who had to do complex algorithms to work out the risk-benefit analysis. Because with every medicine, there is a downside, but you have to work out the risk-benefit analysis of how much upside there is. Exactly. Now, in the case of children, when they did that at the time that we had uh, the Wuhan, the first version. Um, all the way up through Delta, the risk-benefit analysis showed there was an incremental, albeit slight, benefit for certain groups of people to take the vaccine. That changed massively when, as Ian correctly says, Omicron, which had 0.003% chance of infecting particularly children and adults not much higher the actual risk-reward benefits became negative. So it actually meant that on an algorithmic mathematical basis, unless you were in a high-risk category and had underlying illnesses, you were taking a slightly higher risk by taking the medicine. Yeah, the only thing is I would uh, I would caution against, like, 
you know, because there was a bit of a narrative among some people, and I know that's not what you're necessarily suggesting, Ian, but um, but there was a bit of a narrative of like, oh, let's let's get sick, because then you'll have that natural immunity. Uh, and even with the Omicron, there are there are some very, at least for some people in the population, there are some very severe sort of long term um, effects, even from getting Omicron. And it's not necessarily that. It doesn't mean that even with the vaccine, you're sort of protected from that necessarily, but you want to avoid, I think, getting, getting it, uh, the virus in general. I think you want to avoid getting it, but getting the jab doesn't actually help either, right? Because like even the New York uh, Department of Health released a study showing that people who get jabbed for the vaccine are actually at risk of a lot of other diseases due to the fact that the vaccine just destroys your natural immunity. It destroys your antibody system, right? So you're actually more vulnerable to uh, many, 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 many kinds of diseases. When Sorry, where is that, that coming from? I, I missed that. Where where, where does that York, say? It's from the New York Department of Health. It was from a few weeks ago. Can you post the link? Because I've never heard this. Yeah, it's uh, well, somewhere. I'll find it later. Generally yeah. speaking, it's 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 been known for the last year and a half that uh, the more doses you get, the more boosters you get, the more susceptible you are to COVID. That's agreed to by the CDC, the HHS. They all acknowledge that now. Wait, wait. So you're saying the more vaccine you boosters you get, the more susceptible? Yeah. yeah the, I don't. There was a Cleveland can... Clinic trial trial that was done just a few months ago. Uh, this was done for about thirty thousand patients in the same system. And it uh, it found that they were they were puzzled by it too, but it's something we've been saying for over a year, which was the more boosters you get, the more susceptible you can, are. To can COVID. you post the link for that? Because see. every doctor I've spoken sure. to yeah, says the opposite. Absolutely. No, I'll, I'll post it right there. Sure. Yeah, put so, it on top for so, everyone to see. Yeah, don't take the boosters, guys. It's gonna not gonna be good for you. So I, I think right, is everyone in agreement that the that the and mind you, I've been on and off that the initial ones were okay, but the boosters are what everyone's in an uproar about or no, yeah, it's just I, pure. I, would say so. okay. I mean, I, I think that there is proof that the, you know, the first uh, vaccine was actually useful in treating Delta, which was the bad one, right? The, the, the bad uh, uh, variant, but the later boosters, they, they hurt more than they help. I, I don't know why. I don't, they, I don't see this everywhere, anywhere. So can somebody just post the link up top? Because I think I, I don't, I don't believe this. I, I'd have to research it, Ed, and, and typically I'm more left, yeah, but what he's idea, saying I've seen. The whole point here is is regardless of what you believe about the first shot, the boosters, natural immunity, whatever it is, the, I, the whole point of the space and the Twitter files is that regardless, anything that you uh, wanted to discuss publicly on social media as an alternative or whether or not the everything being discussed right now uh if you think that the boosters were bad but the first one was good whatever it is everything was being censored and that's the whole idea i think you know to take a step back that we weren't allowed to even have these discussions i think everyone in the room can agree on that i just want to go to i just want to go to dr sabine because my understanding was it was the original vaccination that was as bad for example in the uk with astrazeneca as money penny uh, mentioned the blood clots were happening from the original vaccine as opposed to the booster but dr sabine if you can win yeah no i was just gonna say uh we can't really make comments of whether it was protective against delta 
because we don't know whether Delta was just weakening on its own. And, and that's the reality of viruses, right? Viruses weaken. They start taking momentum. They get their peak and then they weaken. We've seen with H1N1, it lasted 15 years. Nobody really knew that it lasted 15 years because it came, it had a huge power, did its ravages and then died, right? So that's the power of viruses and we have to but be... But didn't they test it, Sabine? Didn't they test it? How did they test it? They tested it on the septic. Do you think the septic test is accurate? I will tell you that when we were in Omicron, we were still seeing Delta. So, and we have data actually coming from my lab that shows that it's not about the strain. It's actually about your microbiome because we've been following the history, the natural progression of this virus, the whole pandemic. So I can assure you that when you thought you were in Delta, you were already past Delta or while you thought you were in Omicron, you were still in Delta because nobody was looking at the stools of the patients and doing genetic sequencing. You were doing genetic sequencing of the nasal. The nasal is not really as sensitive, in my opinion, as the stools, because everything ends up in your stools. So we were following this virus, and we were noticing that it did t pick up momentum, but, you know, it died off. And I don't think the, vi the vaccine did anything. Now, I will tell you what the vaccine did is it reassured people that were super anxious and didn't want to go out unless they had a vaccine, like a banded, right? Those people, I think, were able to resume life getting that vaccine, right? Because it was like, well, I'm getting something and I'm feeling protected, right? So all those people that were scared were in the basement, were hiding, were not interested in coming out, were wearing like double masks and double gloves and everything, those people, it brought them back to getting confidence to come out, right? So, you know, in that population, but that's, again, freedom of choice, right? If you feel more comfortable to get a vaccine and you're taking on the risk and you know the risk and benefits, go for it. But if you feel like, you know what, I'm strong, I've already had COVID, I've survived it, I'm, my natural immunity is going to kick in, you shouldn't be mandated. And I think that's where we come into freedom of choice. And that was the big thing. And, and why and we're here whole, today. The whole point of it and why we're in the discussion here is that what you just said, um, uh, Sabine, is that um, you should have the freedom to express your opinion and your findings. And that is the whole problem and what this Twitter thread is about, that nothing of this sort of uh, taught, like what you just said, was not allowed. Yeah, ironically, in number 35 of the Twitter files here, it notes, I think it's number 35, it notes uh, how they tried to suppress the Cleveland Clinic study that I mentioned. And so maybe one of the reasons, Ed and crew, you didn't hear about it is they suppressed it, and they suppressed it successfully. I posted in the nest here three or four different articles, three of them, uh, I think two of them are peer-reviewed, one of them is the Cleveland Clinic study, and one of them is a summary post by my good colleague, Borigato. Uh, Kim, did you want to jump in at all? I saw you unmuted before I keep reading the files. Yeah, I just wanted to help uh, Joa a little bit, who had these side effects and uh, from the single-shot uh, vaccine and still believes because he didn't get COVID, that the vaccine has helped him. Uh, the reality is that 20% of people 
uh, are either asymptomatic or never never get COVID. So you may just be lucky and be the one in five that doesn't get it. Doesn't mean that your single shot vaccine was uh, the reason why uh, you didn't get it. Go for yeah, it. I mean, I don't, I don't know, I don't know the reason, but I also, you know, I'm I'm kind of on the fence about the whole censorship thing because. Honestly, from my perspective, there are things, there are some dangerous times when it can be dangerous. For example, the whole censorship thing started because of this whole Taliban recruitment thing. And as government does, they always go overboard. Um, you know, was it needed during COVID to a degree? I think so. Did they overstep and, 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 uh, censored things they shouldn't have? Yeah, definitely, not probably, definitely. Um, But you don't want to, people were scared. Anytime people are scared, like I I was in New York when 9-11 happened. We were told to put tapes on our windows. My mentor is an um, ex-Israeli Mossad person in quantum physics. And he's like, this is ridiculous. I lived in Israel and we were, which has more terrorist attack than anyone. And we're not told to put tape on our window. You know what I mean, like you're very susceptible when you're scared to any information you get. And you might do, I mean, people actually drank bleach. You know what I mean? So should you censor that kind of stuff? I think you should to a degree. Did they overdo it? Yeah, they definitely overdid it. Do you think that maybe people wouldn't have um, drank bleach if they didn't censor it because we'd have a more free discourse? Because I think some of these things happen as a reaction to the censorship, even with like, okay, let's take the, the horse paste <laughs> example of, of ivermectin, um, which I don't think a lot of people went for the animal version, but some people might have, right? Well, why did they do that? It is because, um, they couldn't have con- open conversations with their doctors. They couldn't get a prescription from the doctors. So they felt this desperation and they had a lack of information and knowledge. So they would have gone to the livestock version and i think it's kind of the same thing with the bleach when people can't have these free conversations they are kind of got they go more towards the fringes where their more extreme beliefs are even more reaffirmed right and so that's how they end up maybe drinking bleach or whatever they did if if that even happened but uh, and maybe you know i'm sure it did because people uh, are very much capable of these things. But I think when you have a much more free and open discourse, and also ideally where people aren't just like mocked and made fun of, I think it gives more of an opportunity for, for moderation and for, for, for people to sort of have uh, course corrections. I think that's a great point. I, I, I have a, a perfect example I can give you real quick, and it's pertaining to the Twitter files. You saw in there the mention of Naomi Wolf. Now, she's a really interesting character, super dynamic, very astute, very articulate, but she's been wrong on a few things. But before COVID, uh, there was a very famous example where she was writing a paper about capital punishment in England in the uh, 1800s. And uh, she had based her entire premise on this one interpretation of legal proceedings where she was trying to say that uh, children or young men who had identified as homosexual were somehow put to death. Uh, but she completely misinterpreted the uh, the institution the, the the details in those warrants and in those uh, adjudications 
and she was called out live on a podcast in real time and had to admit her error, right? So rather than being censored, she was taken to task on it. She was put uh, through the gauntlet, and everyone remembers that to this day. Uh, so I think it's a perfect example yeah. on when these things come to bear and when people say things that are not true, the best way is more speech, not less. She was also wrong about the her book, The Beauty Myth, right, where she blew up this right. so-called epidemic of anorexia nervosa, which never actually existed. But a lot of people believed it. And then you had all these campaigns fighting against anorexia and people like eat more, eat more. And, you know, look at where we are now. People have eaten too much. Right. And she was wrong about that. This has been uh, disputed by the National Institutes of Health, where they did a critical study, uh, you know, a critical appraisal on the anorexia statistics that were in her book. Turns out she was wrong, right? So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think Catherine brings up a good point. The, the issue that I see is that while the audience that listens to Mario Spaces are very curious people and do research things and will look at other conversations, we all know that that's not the masses, right? The masses look at one bit of information and make a judgment call based on very little evidence or information, and that's the problem, right? Ideally, yeah, we should have open conversation. Problem is, is most people are not going to participate in all of them. They grab one little piece of info and they make all kinds of assumptions. Yeah, and that's totally true. You know, a quick that, question. Um, can, may, may I just ask a quick question because I think it goes to his point. So, when you're talking about censorship, um, and and there being some kind of analogy made to recruiting of terrorists post nine eleven. I think what what is being missed is that within biomedicine, the discussions themselves were not able to happen. So that's a quite a different thing to say what the Defense Department or intelligence is doing writ large to monitor Internet chatter versus these conversations not being able to happen even at conferences amongst doctors, physicians, anyone who's researching the topic. Offline, I was able to have these conversations, but you couldn't have them publicly. I mean, you, you would risk losing your job, which is one reason why I appreciate so much Mario inviting people on to have these conversations. And at one point when when someone made a comment about something I was saying being uh, untrue, him letting me correct it in real time, because this just wasn't happening during the, the height of the pandemic. But but I have to bring up one thing. Um, you know, doctors did talk. There was a talk. And what you saw with this healthcare revolution that I like to say is the word of mouth PR of physicians speaking, but not publicly. What should have really happened at the beginning of the pandemic was, listen, there were a few physicians out there that was that were really outspoken, right? Dr. Peter McCullough, Pierre Corey, you saw them all. I think there should have been a sit down at the table between the government agents and the people that were really opposing. The fact that it didn't happen and it was a one way narrative is just not science. Scientists need to come to the table and say, okay, well, this is my, what I'm seeing and this is what I'm seeing. And then the public makes a decision and that's how you get an informed consent having seen everything. But there was only one narrative. And to this day, there's still one narrative, guys. I mean, th- these spaces are getting five, ten thousand, you know, listeners, but they're not getting the majority of people that are listening. The mainstream media is completely not talking about all this. 
Uh, Nim, do you want to carry on with the uh, Twitter files? Yeah, let's carry on with the... Yeah, keep reading. Yeah. All right, so we left off um, about uh, Breakthrough, how they uh, censored posts, uh, even though the CDC reported that there were breakthrough cases, uh, people online uh, on any platform that were tweet or posting about this and sort of, you know, spinning it in their in their way to say that, you know, you know, if even if you get the vaccine, you can still catch COVID. Those people were um, censored in some way. So tweet number 25 later, when C- they again uh, are focusing, Robert uh, Kennedy is just mentioned in here multiple times. So later, when the CDC changed its methodology for counting COVID-19 cases among vaccinated people, only counting those resulting in hospitalization or death, the Virality Project complained that anti-vaccine accounts, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and, quote, what's her face, retweeted the story to suggest um, hypocrisy. So in the screenshot, they highlight the CDC announced that COVID-19 cases among vaccinated people will only be counted if they require hospitalization or result in death to maintain better data on, quote, breakthrough cases post-vaccination. Um, and then so they highlight a couple posts, one by uh, uh, Robert Kennedy, where he posted a story about the top posts on this from a Medical Freedom Instagram account, received 7,200 likes. The Children's Health Defense also published an article about the changes a week ago, subsequently tweeted by um, anti-vaccine activist Robert F. Kennedy. And then they highlighted a popular YouTube video from an anti-vaccine activist named What's-Her-Face has been viewed over 60,000 times. So the takeaway, they say, was the decision to be restrictive in counting breakthrough cases is seen as hypocrisy and among some communities suggestive of a cover-up. So number 26, a few months later, breakthrough cases are happening. So breakthrough cases are happening and they are of serious concern. Though they represent an important reason to get the vaccine, anti-vaccine activists use the term to suggest the opposite, that the vaccine is ineffective and that major public health institutions are deceiving the public about it. Public health communication must include clear statistics and guidance around the Delta variant, its level of infectiousness, and rates of breakthrough cases broken down by symptoms, illness, and hospitalization. So the narrative basically here uh, where you had the politicians uh, and Fauci, um, the health experts, quote, that were going around saying in the beginning that if you get the vaccine, you cannot catch covid Uh, That narrative completely fell apart, and um, the CDC itself was obviously publishing data of breakthrough cases. Uh, They initially called them extremely rare events, and they started censoring anyone online that was, um, you know, posting about that, those stories. Um, So that's just another example of not allowing anyone on social media to have these discussions of, well, you know, the health officials and the government is saying if you get the vaccine, you can't catch COVID. But now the CDC itself is saying that 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 is not true and that or saying that in rare circumstances is happening, but you're not allowed to talk about it. And that's the whole subject of this space here is and all the back and forth debate we've had on COVID itself and vaccines in the space is you weren't allowed to talk about this before. 
uh, number 27. In a chilling irony, the Virality Project ran searches for the term, quote, surveillance state as an unaccountable state partner bureaucracy secretly searched it out. The idea that vaccines are part of a surveillance state won its own thought crime bucket conspiracy. So then they post a screenshot of a claim that vaccines are part of a surveillance state. Uh, They talk about Candace Owens claims that vaccines are being used to create a surveillance state. They categorize this as a conspiracy. Uh, They said that Candace Owens posts uh, received 75,000 interactions on Facebook and 20,000 interactions on Twitter. And they put an example of those posts, uh, her Twitter posts and Facebook posts uh, with the keyword uh, surveillance state. So this is some ticket that they created to highlight certain users and uh, um, pointed to Candace Owens. And then the other one, the claim that the vaccine is untested should not and should not be taken. And they put an Instagram post here. An Instagram user points to the fact, the fast development of the COVID vaccine and the fact that it is the first mRNA vaccine to suggest that individuals should not take the COVID vaccine. And that was uh, on a keyword they uh, labeled as experimental mRNA. Uh, number 28. After about a year on April 26, 2022, the Virality Project issued a report calling for a, quote, rumor control mechanism to address nationally trending narratives, end quote, and a, quote, misinformation and disinformation center of excellence to be housed within CISA at the Department of wow. Homeland Security. So here we go. There you go. There you go. This is crazy. Yeah. In the very beginning of this whole thing, uh, what I spoke about all the work Mike Benz has done is that the uh, app, the the censorship apparatus that was originally created to um, deal with the 2020 election that uh, used CISA under the Department of Homeland Security that worked. uh, They were sort of the liaison between social media and these outside uh, or sorry, social media and the government, the intelligence community, FBI, Office of Director of National Intelligence, they use this apparatus. They, they created it uh, to, you know, uh, address misinformation out of the 2020 election. But it was a uh, successful operation of theirs that they used to, you know, for COVID and for, you know, other hot topic uh, issues that arose. And uh, the thread that I had written about the Office of Director of National Intelligence role, uh, this guy, Bill Evanina, who was the uh, one of the officials in the Office of Director of National Intelligence, he described this. He bragged about it on video, uh, about their relationship that the intelligence community had developed with social media ahead of the 2020 election. And he called it, quote, the model of the future. So as you can see here, that that apparatus through CISA was now being used for COVID misinformation. So uh, this tweet again, um, misinformation, disinformation center of excellence to be housed within CISA at the DHS. Uh, And these uh, screenshots, it says, implement a misinformation and disinformation center of excellence housed within the cybersecurity, so CISA, Establish a rumor control mechanism to address nationally trending narratives. And then it has another screenshot on like how to establish the rumor control mechanism, how it would look like. 
They say, establish a rumor control mechanism to debunk nationally trending narratives. A rumor control page could serve as a central authority with information to clarify emerging narratives and get ahead of predictable tropes and narratives. The page can also help coordinate public messaging, much like the CISA's rumor control page did for the 2020 election. So this this is a good thread here by Matt Taibbi because it, it backs up uh, things that uh, Mike Benz has done, the work he's done on CISA, um, and some of the things I've added to that as far as how this organization within the Department of Homeland Security set up you know, to address misinformation and Russia disinformation on the 2020 election is now being used for other um, issues like COVID. So number 29, the next day, April 27, 2022, DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas announced in a House Appropriations Subcommittee hearing that a disinformation governance board had been created to be headed by the singing censor Nina Jankowicz. So again, as a reminder, uh, everyone's uh, aware of that uh, scandal and uh, the uproar that that had caused. And uh, that disinformation governance board was shut down within two months of the announcement. However, um, I just posted in the nest again to remind everyone uh, this this disinformation governance board is uh, operating under a new name under a different agency. It is called the Foreign Malign Influence Center. It is operating under the Office of Director of National Intelligence. Okay, it was passed in law uh, in 2020, and uh, they basically do the same thing uh, under a different name, Foreign Malign Influence Center. So let's see, that was number 29. Threads breaking up here. So number 30, uh, yeah, so if there's as much outrage over this disinformation governance board, there should be equal outrage over the Foreign Malign Influence Center. It does the same exact thing. And they work with CISA weekly, monthly, uh, addressing everything, not just elections. It's COVID, whatever it may be. Number 30, even in its final report, Virality Project claimed it was misinformation to suggest the vaccine does not prevent transmission or that governments are planning to introduce vaccine passports. Both things turned out to be true. So again, um, this surprises me, but, uh, and I'm going to, when we're done with this space, I'm going to download all these reports. But if you go to Virality Project's website, all these reports mentioned in Matt Taibbi's Twitter files here are still accessible. And their final report is all online and everyone can download them. I expect that they will be scrubbed shortly. That's my assumption. We'll see, though. Uh, number 31, the Virality Project was specifically not based on assertions of fact, but public submission to authority, acceptance of narrative, and pronouncements by figures like Anthony Fauci. The project's central animating concept was you can't handle the truth. Uh, and then number 32, one of its four core partners, Pentagon-funded Graphica, explained in a report about, I don't even know how to pronounce this, Foxy, F-A-U-X-I, that because the public cannot be trusted to make judgments on its own, it must be shielded from truths that might undermine its faith in authority. So 
That report as well is uh, accessible on their website still. Uh, it's called Fauci Undermining Authoritative Health Sources. Uh, number 33, this continual process of seeding doubt and uncertainty and authoritative voices, Graphica wrote in a report sent to Twitter, leads to a society that finds it too challenging to identify what's true or false. And in the screenshot, it has a... Uh, Looks like a New York Post article about uh, new emails reveal Fauci told CCP official they would get through this together. It looks like this is an Instagram posting and what they highlighted in the screenshot. This tactic is not incidental. For years, incentivized influencers have repeatedly undermined and delegitimized authoritative health sources, public health institutions and health experts. This continual process of seeding doubt and uncertainty and authoritative voices leads to a society that finds it too challenging to identify what's truth, true or false. So I guess, uh, Ian, I don't know if you want to comment on that, but what I'm getting from this is that the government wants to be in control of what um, we believe. They don't want public debate for it. It's worse than that. It's worse than that. It's actually so scary. It's just think about what, what, what they wrote there. It's a it's a, a basically an author, a totalitarian society. So it says in, the public must be shielded from truths that might undermine its faith in authority. That is a very, very scary and totalitarian society. It's a Sorry, blueprint for totalitarianism is what it is. Yeah. It's a blueprint. And that that's exactly what this new form line influence center does as well as they, they try to uh, uh, tackle misinformation that could, affect the public opinions of Americans. So the, the basically the government's trying to control what we, uh, our thoughts pretty much, whether it's true or, or false, I guess. So number 34, for this reason, the CDC partner project focused often on disinformation events involving Fauci saying release of Fauci emails foments distrust and deriding assertions. He quote, misled the public, which he did. Uh, we know that's true, but um, so the screenshot says release of Fauci's emails foments distrust among anti-vaccine communities around handling of pandemic and vaccine development. Uh, Republican lawmakers claim the emails were leaked and that they proved Dr. Fauci misled the American public at the onset of the pandemic. Well, he did. Number 35, a Cleveland Clinic study showed previous infection offered the same immunity as the vaccine, but Virality Project said discovery was subservient to narrative. Whether or not scientific consensus is changing, natural immunity is a key narrative among anti-vaccine activists. Uh, Justin, you mentioned this one. Do you want to talk about that at all? Well, I think I mentioned everything I did before, but uh, yeah, it, it, it just goes to that entire case of uh, the, the government choosing for you uh, what what they think you you should see that that ultimate filter that is just completely unconstitutional. I mean, this is the government outsourcing its censorship. Yeah. So in the screenshots here, it says the Cleveland Clinic finds that previous infection confers the same immunity as vaccination, leading to further politiz politicization of natural immunity. Uh, so it was a Cleveland Clinic study that they published. Um, and then the bottom, it says the topic is being narratorized as uh, Rand versus Fauci or Rand Paul versus Fauci. Further politicizing the issue, more and more often we are seeing natural immunity narratives be backed up by legitimate scientific findings 
that can be easily twisted to sow mistrust in American public health institutions. So they're taking an actual study that was done by the Cleveland Clinic, but still want to censor this because they say it can be easily twisted to sow mistrust in American public health institutions. Uh, Dr. Uh, Lindley, you want to talk? Yes, if you don't mind. I uh, just go ahead. Wanna... Go ahead. No, I said go ahead. <laughs> Here, Thank you. You got, you got the space. Thank you. I just want to emphasize what uh, Dr. Hazen, uh, Hazan has said. Uh, first of all, we've, they've changed definitions of so many things, natural immunity being one, herd immunity, vaccine, and Everyone at this point is aware that the reason we were not allowed to treat early and come up with solutions on how to deal with this is because then they would not have the EUA. You cannot vaccinate your way through the pandemic, and these are the consequences of what we're seeing now. So um, this has been a huge attack on uh, health systems around the world with WHO, you know, I don't want to get into the whole thing with pandemic treaty and IHRs, but this is actually what they're trying to accomplish. From this point on, anytime something happens, they want to decide how do we actually treat um, these upcoming events and things like that. But the most important thing that has been lost is this personal relationship between physician and patient. Even in pregnant females, we, we tell them not to eat certain cheeses and fish and things like that. But then when the vaccines came out, we just said, no, go ahead. We recommend this. In infants, we've approved vaccines. They're not approved. Now they approve the boosters in children. We've never done anything like this where we actually have forgotten all the science, all the medicine, and decided, decided that one size fits all is the way to go. So we need to keep on pushing and exposing this because this cannot be the future way medicine is handled. That's all I wanted to say. Thank, Thank you. you for that. Um, Kyle, so, we're gonna, oh, sorry, go ahead, Nim. Uh, we're going to move on to post 36, and this is, uh, this is an important one for me personally uh, because I've, I did a uh, thread related to this. So number 36 uh, in quotes, often true content. The Virality Project communications mirror those produced in the recent court case, uh, Louisiana versus Biden or Missouri v. Biden, which showed Facebook admitting to the WHO that it, too, was censoring true content. So this email, um, they have redacted the name of the person at Facebook at the top of the screenshot. Um, it was sent from this person at Facebook to uh, Andrew Slavitt at the WHO and uh, Rob Flaherty at the WHO. Uh, very, very detailed discussion about Facebook's policy on, you know, uh, removing posts, removing content about uh, COVID and uh, vaccines. And uh, the parts that are highlighted uh, in section three of this screenshot said this is op basically levers for tackling vaccine hesitancy content. And this person, who I'm very confident I know who it is, but we'll see. Uh, what it says here is, this is often true content, 
but will remove these groups, pages, and accounts when they are disproportionately promoting this sensationalized content. So I will uh, point out, um, for those not familiar, I did a thread on... Okay, my, I originally started this account by uh, exposing the amount, the, the hundreds of people that social media hired um, from the intelligence community. And uh, it is a fact. Uh, this is all this is all publicly sourced information. Anyone could have found this. But it is a fact that currently right now, the the global head of misinformation department at Facebook is a former CIA officer uh, named Aaron Berman. Uh, he had it publicly on his uh, LinkedIn profile and on his Twitter account. Uh, and I have a video that, you know, on this thread, it was just focusing on the fact that a, a former CIA is in charge of uh, misinformation at Facebook. But uh, what I happened to find also was this a video of Aaron Berman literally talking. I'll post that at the top right there. Uh, you can listen to that video and the language that he, he's talking about there. It, it totally mirrors what is in this uh, email in uh, tweet number 36 of Matt Taibbi. It's the same language where he literally discusses the extent of Facebook's attempt on um, uh, controlling the narrative pretty much. And he, he literally says in this video that even if uh, content is posted on their platform that doesn't violate Facebook's policy, that they will still, you know, de-boost it or, you know, sort of uh, de-amplify it so people don't see it. And he goes into great lengths there uh, discussing Facebook's policy. And, and my assumption, even though the name is redacted in this email, is that's probably sent from Aaron Berman. But I don't know that, obviously. The language is the same, though. Number 37. And by the way, I should mention that I did a thread on who Google hired, and it's the same thing at Google. There's three former CIA uh, officers that are managing misinformation at Google and YouTube right now. So moving on. 37. From the start, Stanford explained the Virality Project would essentially continue the work of its 2020 election integrity partnership. The same gyro system from the EIP is up and running, they wrote. So again, this is uh, what I discussed in the beginning, what Mike Benz uh, talked about, that this whole censorship apparatus they created to go after or, or to you know, get up and running ahead of the 2020 election is now being used for other topics like COVID. And, um, and you so, yeah, that's now. what... The they switch, you know, from pandemic to Ukraine. It was elections and yeah. then the pandemic and now Ukraine. Can't even talk about it. Exactly. Like same try, same you know, thing. Going on, going on YouTube and talking about the war in a way that says, oh, Ukrainians commit war crimes. Oh, you know, that's a ban. Like, you'll get banned yeah. for that. Yeah, because you're promoting a Russia narrative and Russia disinformation. So that that's always the excuse that they use. Russia talking points. So... Uh, number 38, in the last Twitter Files thread, we posted a video of EIP director Alex Stamos describing that project as Stanford trying to fill the gap of things the government couldn't do legally. So uh, if you read the uh, Matt's prior Twitter Files, the day he testified at Congress, he posted it. Uh, this video was posted of Alex Stamos. And just to give people background on Alex Stamos, 
um, in the Missouri v. Biden case. Um, I have highlighted this. Alex Stamos used to work at Facebook. Okay. And Alex and Sissa's, uh, Sissa named uh, or had Facebook as their industry lead when they set up these monthly conference calls ahead of the 2020 election. And Alex Stamos was their contact um, at Facebook. Alex Stamos then left Facebook and joined, I believe, yeah, the University of Stanford, where he worked with the EIP. Um, and then that's when Facebook hired um, Aaron Berman from the CIA to replace Oh, I don't know if you replaced Alex Stamos, but yeah. And by the way, at the same time, this is this incestuous relationship Mike Benz and I have talked about. Um, CISA farms out uh, these misinformation projects to these uh, private groups um, like the Election Integrity Partnership or the Virality uh, Project. But at the same time, Alex Stamos is working for one of these groups. He's also on the on an advisory committee board at CISA. So he's, he's got, you know, he's working for both parties, which is a conflict. And then tweet 39 on Matt Taibbi's thread, same thing. We also showed a video in which Stamos introduced EIP research director, Renee DeResta as having worked for the CIA. DeResta in 2021, 2022 would be listed as a Stanford scholar leading the virality project. So yeah, and it just has so a, the whole uh, suits, right? The whole the whole bunch of them. They're either FBI or they're well, in this case, CIA, and they're the ones yeah. doing the Stanford project, and they're pretending, you know, that no, this is just an independent thing that you know concerned citizens and doctors are worried about, but really, it's an intelligence project. That's what it is. Yeah, I mean, you can easily draw that conclusion because they keep popping up everywhere, right? So either that's a coincidence or. It's a yeah. very unlikely coincidence. Like one person yes. would be a coincidence, but all of them? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, yeah, you so have these people. Them. You have the you have CIA people working at the Virality Project. You have ex CIA people managing misinformation at Facebook and at Google, YouTube, and I mean, there's just there's tons of examples of this, and you can you can just call it a, a coincidence or or believe whatever you want. I guess. Ed, Ed, so, Ed, I'd like to hear, Ed, I'd like to hear your thoughts. I mean, what do you think? Do you think this is uh, drawn too much out of this, or do you think that there is some kind of a connection going on between basically the deep state and what's happening on social media? Um, Ed? All right, Ed's not there. Let's go for somebody. Let's go to Kyle. Kim. Let's go to Kyle. I'd yeah. like to hear Kyle. from Kim on this. Yeah, Kyle, go ahead. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. Um, so, wow, there was a lot that that was covered, and there's so many different moving parts. One thing that that I would just—it's a question that I don't have the answer to. I I genuinely want feedback on this issue because, on the one hand, this is similar to 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 kinds of heuristics and biases problems that that we hear with with the media like if if there's a case where it confirms your prior if the new york times runs with a story that confirms your prior then you say wow the new york times they knocked it out of the park this this is 100 true but if they say something that disconfirms your priors you're like man they're they always do this that's the lamestream media whatever people say and so the the question here is, if you think that the government has been engaged in misinformation, 
disinformation. And what I would actually say is someone who's studied this is really sometimes when you're trying to learn a communication network, you will interject. This is what we did with uh, the, the Taliban. You interject a piece of information into the system to see where it comes out, where it spits out. And then you can unlearn that communication network, so to speak. So I'm not even sure entirely their role here. But how do you then adjudicate what part is true? Were they lying then or are they lying now? Because in what you said and what Catherine said, it's the most important issue here is, are you going to get COVID again? Yes or no, if you haven't already had it. And the answer is almost certainly yes. And so what, what are the implications of that for all of us and our long-term health? And how, how do you get trust back to, to inform your decision? Because the only thing that I'm really interested in people in this space and who will listen later know is that despite the fact that you have some immunity, and we say natural immunity, that's sort of a fuzzy term, but it doesn't mean sterilizing immunity. It, it just means that it can attenuate in the same way that you would hope a vaccine would without having major, having to pay a major price for it. But biologically, you do pay a high price for natural immunity. And the problem is you're going to keep getting it. So biologically, to, to repair the damage that's done when you have no T-cells or very low T-cell counts for a stretch of months, it means potentially the reactivation of viruses that you've already had. In, in Europe, there were rashes of cases of kids dying from strep A, which is just almost unprecedented. So you have this immune dampening effect, and it may be temporary, but it's a good question to ask. If you don't have T-cells, then what are you going to do you don't have a very good functioning immune system. So the, the, the issue for all of us is that all of this confusing misinformation, disinformation now leads us into a, a sort of landscape of uncertainty where people don't know what to do. And so each person's sort of turning to someone who can confirm their priors, which I think is potentially disastrous, especially if you think people are going to continue getting the virus and paying a very high price for it. The, the deceptive part of the way this has been covered, and I, I went back and looked at this last night, uh, all these screenshots I took from the early days of the pandemic. It was considered a zero or a one, and it was presented as you either got it and survived, or you got it and you died. And then later, it started to emerge that there were quote-unquote long haulers, so any of you in this space, if you've had it, are you better now than you were before you had it? Are any of your biomarkers that you've had tested better or worse since having it? And how long do you think your body is going to hold out? Because we're just at the very beginning stages of this. If it's going to be with us for decades, um, how many times do you think you can get this infection and it not push your immune system completely over the edge? That's, that's one of the most important questions we all have to answer. Right, yeah, thanks for that. And Naomi, do you want to carry on with the rest of the Twitter files and then we'll go to that for being? Yeah, I think, um, and again, to point out what, uh, or to, uh, what Kyle just said is, 
<clears throat> these are discussions we should be able to have, right? We should be able to have uh, open, healthy debate on these type of topics. But as you can see here, we're on tweet 41. You have multiple examples, uh, different topics that uh, the government was censoring or, you know, through vir virality uh, project that uh, we weren't allowed to have this debate. You were only uh, able to hear one side of it. And that was basically, you know, pro-vaccine. Like they only wanted Americans to see like pro-vaccine and push um, everyone getting the vaccine and any any sort of topic that would um, affect the or, or cause vaccine hesitancy. They um, they censored that. So I think by, let's see, number 40, by October 2020, Stamos was hinting at the direction of the future Virality Project, telling a national cybersecurity conference that the, quote, anti-disinformation mission needed a new focus. Number 41, we talk way too much about foreign. It's sexy and it's fun and it's a little bit cold, wary, Stamos said, adding that the vast majority of problems were now domestic. We have like an 80-20 breakdown. I think that needs to be flipped. So there is a clip here of Alex Stamos discussing um, about how domestic uh, disinformation should be a focus and they should shift. Uh, let's see, 42, Virality Projects uh, Partners, Depart uh, Department of Defense funded Graphica, the National Science Foundation funded Center for an Informed Public, the GEC-funded DFR Lab and the NYU Center for Social Media and Politics, or CSMAP. So this shows uh, the funding that was given <clears throat> through the Department of Defense to these organizations. So first screenshot shows the Department of Defense awarded $3 million to Graphica. Uh, looks like $200,000 to University of Washington through a grant. Uh, there's a screenshot about DARPA, or this is all Graphica. So the last one organization was founded in 2012 as the Social Media Political Participation Lab at NYU in July 2019. The Center for Social Media and Politics was formed through the Knight Foundation's Program for Research on the Future of an Informed Society. The Knight Foundation's gift was matched by the Charles Koch Foundation and CS Map has been further supported by Craig Newmark Philanthropies and the Siegel Found Family Endowment. Number 43, Virality Project would later say it partnered with several government agencies, including the Office of the Surgeon General and the CDC. It reportedly also worked with DHS's CISA and the Global Engagement Center, GEC, among others. <clears throat> and the screenshots, federal government agencies served as coordinators for national efforts. The Virality Project built strong ties with several federal government agencies, most notably the Office of the Surgeon General and the CDC, to facilitate bidirectional situational awareness around emerging narratives. The CDC's biweekly COVID-19 state of vaccine confidence insights reports provided visibility into widespread anti-vaccine and vaccine hesitancy narratives observed by other research form firms. And then it looks like this is a comment by Secretary Blinken. 
yeah, so Stanford is doing remarkable work on that. And it's one of the things that we want to make sure that we're benefiting from because this is a day in, day out battle for us, combating misinformation and disinformation around the world. We have at the State Department itself a big focus on this. We have something called the Global Engagement Center that's working on this every day. But that work is both inspired by work that's being done in academia, including here at Stanford, as well as where appropriate collaborations. And one of the things we have to do is to make sure that we're using technology itself to deal with some of the downsides of technology when it's misused, including when it comes to misinformation and disinformation. So we're trying to build out these kind of partnerships to make sure that we're looking at every whatever it cuts off there. Yeah, so, so that actually, uh, you know, invalidates what one of the Krasensteins said earlier, right? <laughs> that it wasn't government. No, it is government, guys. It's, it is fully government, whether 100%. that is by whether it's directly from the government, uh, which I've shown the Office of Director of National Intelligence involvement or if it, it's a third-party group that is funded by the Department of the Defense uh, to do that, the work you know, on the outside, in the private sector. Uh, so just to end the, uh, the thread, number 44, to recap, America's information mission went from counterterrorism abroad to stopping foreign interference from reaching domestic audiences to 80% domestic content, much of it true. The Disinformation Governance Board is out but truth policing is not. So I, I wish uh, I was able to talk to Matt Taibbi and he understands because no one really talks about the Malign Foreign Influence Center. But yeah, so the DHS's Disinformation Government Governance Board is gone, but it's not gone, okay? You have the Foreign Malign Influence Center that has taken its place and it's operational. It opened five months ago, September 2022. Okay, it's under the Office of Director of National Intelligence. And why is nobody talking about that? Because there was such know. an outrage over. Know. Yeah, there was such an outrage over the other one, but this one is just so operating so quietly. And I know some people have brought it up, but it's like overall, it, it is very hush. They'll. Yeah, uh, I, mean, I think they're having. They're going to have some hearings, is what I hear. We'll see. They'll. They'll bring them up. I'm sure. Well, we should make this space Con- about about that. Actually, we should make the space about that right now. I mean, there's, you know, we can keep talking about this, obviously. This is key to it. It's key to everything. So why don't you kick it off, Name? Uh, okay, I'll start talking about it now. So, yeah. so tell us, give us a background on what this uh, foreign malign influence uh, thing is. Uh, okay, so it's a lot to unpack here, but the, the okay, one thing everyone needs to understand is these uh, centers or these agencies that are founded within an agency, like a sub-agency, for example, CISA, okay, um, they're already operating prior to uh, them actually given a name, okay? So Chris Krebs, uh, I'd have to look up real quick. He, he was already working at the Department of Homeland Security under a different sort of center, and I forget the name. I'd have to search it, but once... Uh, CISA was actually officially founded, then that became the operation. But it was already sort of going on behind the scenes. Uh, the same thing with the Foreign Malign Influence Center, which I'll post at the top again. Uh, the origins of this center, the Foreign Malign Influence Center, started 
with a person called Shelby Pearson, which I did another extensive thread about. She was, um, she was appointed as basically the elections are by the office of director of national intelligence um, in 2019 ahead of the 2020 election. And she uh, was named um, this, this just bear with me. So in the Missouri V Biden uh, case, they uh, deposed Elvis Chan. We're all familiar with that name. Uh, he works at the FBI and Elvis Chan was asked, you know, Yoel Roth said that people from the intelligence community were warning him and other social media platforms of a potential hack and leak. Um, Elvis Chan was deposed and said, and asked, you know, did you warn of this? And he said, yes. And then he was asked what other government, uh, um, people from the government warned of this. And he only identified, you know, himself, uh, another woman at the FBI and this lady called Shelby Pearson. And she worked at the office of director of national intelligence. Uh, Shelby Pearson was having weekly meetings with CISA ahead of the 2020 election, and then they would have the meetings with the social media companies. So while Shelby Pearson was sort of just appointed as the elections threat executive, um, I'll find that thread and put that at the top. Um, after her work was done in post-2020 election, they uh, in the National Defense Authorization Act, they, let's see, it was Senator Klobuchar introduced legislation to uh, open this department, where's my thread, called the Foreign Malign Influence Center. And it was approved and passed by law in uh, 2020. It took a couple of years to open up. Uh, but in the meantime, prior to this uh, center's opening, we had this DHS Disinformation Governance Board, okay, that was announced opened up and then shut down because of all the public outrage over that. And then last September, uh, 2022, the foreign malign influence center finally opened its doors and, uh, their mission is, it is literally the exact same thing as the DHS disinformation governance board. It is just called a different name and it is under a different intelligence agency. Okay. And their mission is to counter malign influence that seeks to influence public opinion and behavior. So they operate, they operate under this guise of like, you know, foreign disinformation or amplification of something they find that is false. And they can use that as an excuse to go to social media to, uh, you know, censor or take down, you know, competing narratives like to say Ukraine, Russia war, for example, would be a perfect one. Uh, and then on this thread that I did, they appointed a person named Jeffrey Wickman. He is former 30-year CIA officer. He's now the acting director of the Foreign Malign Influence Center. And I, I labeled him basically this. He, he would be and this department would literally be the thought police. There's, there's just literally no other way to put it. They are, they are the department. If you're not familiar with the Office of Director of National Intelligence, it was created after 9-11, and they oversee the entire intelligence community. And that is where this uh, Foreign Malign Influence Center operates under. Um, and then number three was uh, Senator Klobuchar and Senator Jack Reed were the one that introduced legislation on this to establish the center. Um, and then they opened it up. Uh, and that's pretty much it. I did. I put that thread together real quick. 
like within 10 minutes. But yeah, no one's talking about it. I searched on Twitter. I was the only one to even, you know, bring this to light. Um, I've sent it to everyone I can. It's not, I, I even talked to Fox News about it. I mean, uh, Congress about it, but it's not, it's not being discussed as much as it should be. You can go to the website under the DNI and they talk about what they do. Again, it was started, you know, sort of before it was given a name, they were still operating and it was, it was geared towards election disinformation. And then it was actually established as an official center and it now operates as of five months ago. Any questions, guys? Do we know how many people work for that center? Yes, there are currently 12 people, it looks like. And it looks like uh, in tweet number five, it said they opened their doors with a budget of up to 12 people. And current DNI Haynes has already asked for an increase in budget to expand the Foreign Malign Influence Center. So currently 12 and growing. Wow. Okay. So it's interesting to me that they were able to just kind of do this almost like immediately, or I guess at the same time as the other one and not get the same pushback. And it seems like the reason that the first one sort of had to close its doors, it's because it had that public pushback and it had it from, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't just sort of the right politically, you know, it was everyone coming together to, to push back. And I think that's really key and really important. Um, but here it's just so quietly operating. Yep. Name, I, I go through some, I'm going through the FOIAs from, from my laws who just kind of look at stuff. They have this, they had this daily or maybe it was weekly report that would come out from FEMA but includes a lot of the information that's cited here in the Twitter files. And then there's a couple other, like, you know, this is basically correspondence between HHS, uh, CDC, OASH, and uh, Facebook. It's it's stuff that I have primarily in my FOIAs. But uh, there is this one group that keeps coming up, and they're carbon copied on a lot of emails, usdigitalresponse.org. Are you familiar with that at all? And Kyla Fullenweider. I don't know. She's just copied on a lot of stuff, and it's just weird. USdigitalresponse.org, and I, I I don't know the group. It was the first time I sort of saw this as I'm glancing through things, and there's so many acronyms going on. I didn't know if you encountered that at all. Yeah, I have not, but I can just say that when I go on sort of, you know, I'll go out down one path, for instance, like, you know, exposing how many, you know, intelligence community people work at Twitter. That was my first one that I I listed all 15 people, former FBI agents that work at Twitter and that exploded, but that's on their public LinkedIn page. So it's not like they're outing themselves. I'm just like shedding light on it. And then I went to looked at who's working at Facebook and I found it was a CIA guy working or as the manager of misinformation there. Same thing with Google. Anyone hasn't seen the thread I did on Google. Uh, There's three former CIA and one of the guys name is Nick Rossman. He had a Twitter account. And is just, Ian, you remember that? He's just publicly just tweeting, you know, Trump's a Russian agent. Yeah, uh, I remember that. Uh, he, was, he said that uh, anti vaxxers are Nazis. He, uh, he put a tweet, uh, 
you know, during when COVID was sort of, they were doing lockdowns and then there was a picture, he responded to someone's tweet of a picture of people out in Tennessee. And then he said, well, you know, I hope they cough his quote. I hope they cough on their uh, grandparents and they rot or something like that. So, I mean, just like, this is that guy, Nick Rossman, he's in charge of, he's one of the senior management at trust and safety misinformation at Google YouTube right now. Wow. So I I, I was wondering, is it, um, is there indication that they're looking beyond social media? Are they also looking at uh, sort of traditional media as well? Is that you? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I, so the point, what I was making was every time I go down one avenue, it leads me to another. And then to answer your question, yes. So after doing those threads on the intelligence communities sort of infiltration inside social media. I mean, we're talking they've hired over 300 people just since 2018, whereas prior to 2018, there was maybe, uh, you know, less than 10 at each company and Facebook had like one. But then I started looking at the censorship part. And to answer your question, yes, I, um, I'll have to find this real quick. But yeah, there was a guy, I found a guy named Bill Evanina. He works at Office of Director of National Intelligence and I'll have to find it real quick, but he, I have him on video. Um, it's funny, all these people talk publicly, but these YouTube videos are viewed, they have like, you know, maybe a couple hundred views, if, if that, but here, I'll post that up here where he says he's calling for, this is the Bill Evanina thread. I mean, everyone, you know, like, it, it's worth everyone's time to, you know, just go through these and hear, Here's the one that you're asking, Catherine, where he says that intelligence agencies partnering with cable cable companies and news media. And he says he's basically calling for the intelligence community to partner with cable companies, news media and newsprint media and then bragging about how they're I'll post that one there and then bragging about how their uh, relationship and their partnership with Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and all the social media companies ahead of the 2020 election. So it's just the same thing over and over from these people. They're, they're not publicly hiding, and they call it a partnership. So, Yeah, the, uh, the email I was looking at, you know, this is between HHS uh, and Facebook, and, you know, what's really interesting when you read through these emails is you realize how much the social media platforms were just bending over backwards to toe the line. Right. And how like it was just like their mission. So I'm like looking at this email and they're they're coming up on their next Bolo meeting with HHS and this guy Peyton Ahim. Uh, I just posted it to my Twitter. I'll post it to the nest in a little bit, but. He, he basically is saying, Hey, before in advance of our meeting, I want to let you know, here's the stuff that we're doing right now. Right. And he's talking about how he says, uh, we, we were working with, uh, to build the, the WhatsApp bot for the CDC. They're providing Facebook profile frames for HHS. And it's all about plans to get people vaccinated, profile frames to encourage your friends to get vaccinated. And it's, like just they're just proactively just bending over backwards, and I think I've mentioned on several other spaces. One of the things our our FOIA has also uncovered was that Facebook basically gave the HHS and gave CDC fifteen million dollars 
in free advertising. They basically said, hey, we wanted to give this to you guys. I, I suppose that apparently there was already kind of a framework where they could do this as a vehicle. But it comes across like because, you know, they're getting huge pressure, as we've all seen from the Twitter files, both publicly and behind the scenes being berated both at Facebook, Twitter and otherwise that, you know, that, that these social media companies weren't doing enough to censor things. And it almost seemed like hush money or they were paying off, you know, some type of enforcer where they're paying $15 million to Facebook and free advertising, to HHS and CDC and free advertising. And the CDC and HHS came back and said, that's fine, but we want it in this regards and we have to approve uh, this, this and this, right? So basically <laughs> the CDC pushing back and saying, we want total control of this. Uh, it's just, it's a, it's a mess. And again, with the Twitter files, that's just Twitter, right? We, we don't have, like, no one's going to buy Facebook and do the same thing for us there. But holy cow, it's got to be just a whole other monster there and at Google, right? Yep, pretty much. I mean, the whole, the whole point of all of this and what Matt Taibbi's uh, thread, um, the work that Mike Benz has done. Mike Benz's work is extremely extensive. And almost everything that I do, I hit a point and then it gets back to what, Mike Benz has done because it's 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 very very extensive and there's parts that I already know about that I haven't even started to look at yet because it's just it gets so confusing all these groups that are funded by the Department of Defense and the Office of Director of National Intelligence it's just it's like an octopus it's just huge and then it I don't know it it, it it mentally drains me when I start looking at it, to be honest. Right? Yeah, it does. It's it's very draining. And I'll just say, when they founded this, <clears throat> the problem and the difference between the DHS Disinformation Governance Board and what is currently operating, the, dis, the Foreign Malign Influence Center, is that the Foreign Malign Influence Center was passed uh, in law, like through legislation introduced by Klobuchar in 2020. And it gave it, that law gave it an eight-year operating time frame so it's going to be operational for two presidential election cycles um and you know then it comes up for renewal so you know at the very least congress should have strict oversight on exactly what this uh center is doing uh their their regular meetings with social media because they are meeting with social media through CISA. okay the same thing is happening uh they sh there should be heavy oversight into what they're doing, uh, the kind of, uh, new, you know, posts that they're calling disinformation and having social media censor. And through that same National Defense Authorization Act that founded the Foreign Line Influence Center was this authorization of uh, for the Office of Director of National Intelligence and the Department of Defense to hand out grants and contracts to these private contractors like the Virality Project or the Election Integrity partnership so that was all done on the in one fell swoop and the main problem here is when you see on the news or social media of these massive budget uh bills that are sent to congress that are thousands of pages long that none of our lawmakers read these things but they all vote them through they all pass and things like this like this foreign line influence center was just tucked into like a thousand page National Defense Authorization Act and voted through in it. And unfortunately, it, it, it was voted through under uh, Trump. So it's like he, he didn't read it. He didn't have good people working for him to point this out. 
and it gets signed into law. And that's how a lot of uh, things like this are are able to get done because they're just snuck into a larger bill that it doesn't get discovered. And now, unfortunately, it's law. So I don't know what they can do about it. They can't shut it down. So I've got a wider question. And I guess because the whole... Uh, the whole of this space has been about, you know, why censorship isn't allowed. But Ed, coming to you, um, I mean, the, is the, are there scenarios where censorship would be okay? Let's say we had a, a situation where, I don't know, it was proliferated throughout the internet, some kind of misinformation, and that could seriously endanger, endanger people. Would it be fair to censor in that scenario? Or if not, or what would be, what in your mind would be the parameters for censorship? Well, I, I mean, I think anything illegal should be – anything blatantly illegal should be censored. I mean, I think we can all agree child pornography sh- shouldn't be on Twitter. I, also, I think, you know, there has to be a line drawn. Where does a social media company become so big that they shouldn't be censoring? Does Say, say I was to start my own social media website, should I have the right to censor? I think, I, you know, maybe I want to have a social media company, a Twitter clone just that – caters to the left am i allowed to do that am i going to be you know attacked for doing that sure but like where where's the line drawn where you say this can't be done or if do we pass laws saying that social media can't censor certain content i don't know where the line's drawn you know if you go look at truth social truth social has censored posts as well are they too small to be considered in this or are they large enough like where's that line drawn i think Everybody has different lines, and I think, you know, whether it's how far should they go in censoring what information, I think there's a line there. And we all we all have a line that we, that we draw and say, okay, child pornography is too far, but everything else isn't. Or you might say, you know, medical stuff should not be censored, or you might say medical stuff should be censored. So, so I, I think we all agree that censorship isn't good, and we all agree that free speech is good, but I think we all just draw that line in different places. And I guess in a way, um, to have a company that's say a private business, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of working on a story that's adjacent to this is, um, you know, is it, is it kind of compelled speech in a way, uh, to force a company to publish something that they might not want to because it doesn't allow, uh, align with say their values. Um, and that is, a, I think that is a kind of a complex, um, situation. We get into trouble here is that you have a government institution that comes in and says, uh, you know, you, you shouldn't publish this or that. But if the company determines, uh, determines on its own, it's like you can criticize it, but it isn't a hundred percent clear that it is, you know, not within its jurisdiction as a private entity to decide for any reason whatsoever that it chooses not to publish, like Ed's just said, maybe they do want to have just leftist, um, you know, uh, narratives, let's say, and they don't want to publish, you know, anybody who has a different point of view. Uh, we might criticize that, but is that wrong? And then on the other hand, in terms of like, dangerous uh like this is a conversation i was just having offline with someone uh in the space but um you know you do have you know people who endanger others by promoting things that might really 
pose a danger to their lives because they are spreading false information, maybe for profit, maybe they want to sell a product or something like that. So what do you do about that? And, you know, my view was that, you know, censorship may not be the best way. And, and as I said earlier, it pushes people, you know, deeper into, um, because you don't have sort of light as the disinfectant, but I do believe in tackling that. So, and I think that might be a good question for the, for the room is like, what are some of the tools that we can use that don't outright censor? And I'm much more personally in favor of things like, let's say community notes, but perhaps there are other tools that could be developed um, that um, allow sort of corrections and transparency without necessarily removing the content. But I'm not even opposed to necessarily putting in content labels and warnings. And I know some people might hate that but uh, and disagree with it. But if it has sort of the reasoning as to why that's there, at least it's not removing their speech. So uh, before I open that, your question up to everybody, which is uh, an interesting question, I do want people to answer that. But in terms of, I'm not understanding how using social media is for speech. So, for example, in the case of three or three creative, I understand where it could be compelled speech. Well, but publishing social... somebody else's speech, um, yeah. sort of compelling to publish somebody else's speech, essentially. Yeah, but but you know, with social media, whether it's Twitter, YouTube, it's actually the users who are producing the content. It's not the actual company. So, how would it be the same? How would it be compelled? Well, they're far, they're forcing the company to be the publisher of that speech. So it's kind of the equivalent of if I had a media company like a publication and, uh, you know, let's say whatever, let's use transphobic speech and, uh, or, you know, whatever. I'm just using that as an example. And I might have a very different stance than somebody else. And, but I'm forced to publish that speech just because, you know, you have to equally publish everything. Um, as a private owner of that company, I may, that might be something that I very, very, very strongly disagree with. Um, so in some ways I do view that as, as, as sort of compelling someone to publish something they don't want to. So it, it is kind of compelled speech in a, in a way. Do you mind if I pitch in on that just real quick? Cause I've got some ideas on how we ought to handle it. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so, uh, on one side, uh, we need laws passed that make it a criminal offense for any government official to coordinate with any private business uh, to, uh, to, to stop uh, any American, either individually or collectively, from being able to express their First Amendment rights unless there is an actual warrant from an official court. That's the first thing. That needs to happen. And in fact, I, I support a little bit unrelated, but I support in getting rid of qualified immunity for all government employees, particularly federal employees. So the second thing is this. So to address this other thing that you're talking about, Catherine, which is a tricky one. I think what we need to do, I, I have never supported getting rid of Section 230, which for those who aren't my may not be familiar with it, is the portion of the uh Federal Indecency Act that was passed, I think, in 98. Section 230 is why we have social media companies, in part, because it takes immunity or gives these companies immunity if someone posts something stupid that they weren't able to control because there are so many people involved in their platforms. 
And this has been a big part of it. In fact, we've talked in this space in the past about Section 230, the uh, threat of taking Section 230 away being used in part as a wedge to get these companies to cooperate in, in what we're talking about. I do not believe in getting rid of Section 230, but I, I have come to the conclusion in my mind that we need to amend it to the effect that no company may be afforded Section 230 rights if they are stopping free speech. We're giving them immunity from liability if someone makes a criminal mistake. But, we, but to be granted that, you must not prohibit certain kinds of speech. Now, that would apply to True Social as well as Facebook and Twitter and anyone. And I don't know the precise language on that, but that needs to be there. And then, but also to give them an off-ramp. So if you don't want to do that, then you're under this uh, regime of uh, regulation. And, and, and that way, everyone would know where every platform is and what their requirements are, at least more clearly than they do now, and the government would be held accountable. Those are the types of things we need to do. Hey, hey Jim, Jim, can I have a follow-up with that? Can yeah. I give you a follow-up question? I, I like the idea of the warrant, but I think you have to say if a company's a certain size because that's going to hurt so many small businesses. Like, and it's going to hurt discussion forums, any discussion forums, whether it's Reddit or any, like if I'm running my own forum on 3D printing, it's going to, I'm not going to be a delete a post unless there's a warrant. What if somebody's spamming? What if somebody's, you know, blatantly advertising or, you know, making multiple posts that say the exact same thing to try and just ruin my site? Okay, so spam I, spamming I like... would not, not really be uh, under this one and two. The, the we already have that system in place as it is. If someone like the whole issue of taking things down by warrant or whatever, that that's already there. Any court can do such a thing. Now we can we can clarify the guidelines. I'm not certain. Certainly, it's worth considering, but I'm not certain that we need to draw a line of size of company. If if it's too onerous for a small company to do then it's probably not a good regulation anyway. We do that in so many areas of the federal government, and it, it, it's crazy when we do it. But, I mean, I'm open to listening to yeah, that, but, but I don't but, think but that's like, the like, say, say I'm just Say I'm just running my blog, own personal blog, and it's like my travel blog. Well, you're blog under a different like... regime. And and if it's just your personal travel blog, you are personally liable for what you put up on it. But but let, let's say it's open to comments where people users can comment you have on my the blog ability to restrict and comments. say something I don't like. And 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 there may I, I think there might be something in Section 230 for that, but I don't think that there is. And you have the ability in your individual blog to edit comments. You also have the ability yeah, yeah, but, to, but, but, to but what differentiates come out at all. Yeah, yeah, but but what I'm saying is what differentiates me. Like wh that's why I say you have to draw a line on a smaller company or smaller individual. If if you're saying there's no line drawn, you just need a warrant to delete something or edit it. What happens to me with my blog if I have my comments open? Because I want my friends to be able to comment, but somebody that I don't like comes and just like starts posting like stuff I don't want them posting on my blog. Well, I don't know the Shouldn't I have their... answer to that, but one distinction that can be made is a corporate versus an individual distinction. So if you're doing it as an individual, as a sole proprietor, uh, then uh, you, you're, you're, you're liable. If you do it as a corporation... Yeah, but I, I mean, Twitter could get around that. If Twitter's private now, they're not a corporation, and 
you know. Well, no, they are incorporated. You, no, 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 it's, it's private. They're a corporation. So. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, but they don't have to be. They don't. They don't have to be incorporated. Well, well, they could okay. say we're going to be an LLC or listen, we're going to be a sole proprietor. I understand we need to clarify Ed, it, but it's business. the least important aspect of this. Like, if there's a real problem with that, we can address it. That's not functionally what we're having a problem with here. What we're having a problem with is that we've got a regime in place right now that Name Redacted has clarified so purely, uh, that Matt Taibbi and Schellenberger and Barry Weiss are doing so fantastically. We have a regime in place where the federal government is embedded in these corporations. That needs to be extracted. By the way, that will be very tough to do. But that's why I think we need to put criminality on federal actors in this. Because if we do not nip that in the bud, we will not get out of this anytime soon. And as uh, Name Redacted mentioned, you know, the, the fact that the Foreign Malign Influence Center has authorization through two more election cycles, we're already at risk. Like, we're, we're literally at risk right now. We're, the, the COVID thing's kind of past us. There might be some other things that play out, but it's kind of past us right now. What's not past us is elections. And, and the belief in the federal government that if anyone in any fashion, directly or indirectly, is connected to a foreign actor, then therefore the federal government has a right to censor that speech. That's a, a, it's malarkey. That's not even constitutional. The first, I have a First Amendment right to believe that, we, that, that, that uh, uh, Zelensky's a wonderful guy and we should be fully supporting him. And, and talking to Zelensky about it and then stating my opinion on it afterwards. That is my First Amendment right. Those rights have been taken away right now under this regime. And, and it is a serious matter that we must address. And criminality on – see, it's the federal government that we're concerned about. We're not concerned about politicians or other people. They're not our problem because that's what the First Amendment is, is there to allow these people to talk. What we have to take serious action on – is the federal government because the constitution is a document of negative rights, negative rights against the government. And that paradigm must change quickly or we're in serious trouble, not just in the United States, but worldwide. Jim, can I just comment to what you said? I, you know, I, I used to believe exactly what you said until I actually put a lot more thought in it. Cause there are times where, I've always said if if Twitter can censor people, they're an editor, and if they're an editor, they shouldn't be protected, right? Um, but then I thought about it more, and you know, you have scenarios like revenge porn or things like that that should be taken down, right? Um, they're actually illegal, <clears throat> so they should well, be taken well, down. So that's exactly when I get the, the question. Thing, yeah, the the thing that gets me is where it comes to incitement, right? So they can argue because incitement isn't well defined. They can argue that, oh, we took, we censored these posts because they were incitement. They were inciting people to act in dangerous behavior and not vaccinate themselves and spread COVID. Right. So until we have a better definition of what is incitement, and I think that's what's, that is the key. Um, I think this will continue to happen. So you're, you're conflating a couple different not, things here, Joa. You're conflating criminal mm -hmm. activity with the uh, uh, structure under Section 230 that, that currently governs what these platforms can do. Any criminality of any sort 
can be adjudicated mm-hmm. in a court of law, and that can, and in the United States it works well. It doesn't work well in places like Brazil where courts of law are putting out uh, edicts against social media at political whim. But, you know, that, that, that's, a, that's a challenge. We roughly don't have that in this country, even though I think we have real problems with our justice system right now. But nonetheless, we still roughly have the rule of law that is laid out clearly in our constitutional documents, and it's laid out clearly in, in state constitutional documents. So it, the things that you're concerned about, which are concerns, and I grant, they are very important and serious concerns – can be adjudicated in a court of law to put together general regimes under section 230 for these organizations to put out a general regime to say okay well we can decide that well no you can go out of section 230 if you want and become editors and then work under that regime fine while you're under section 230 no you may not and that's the distinction that we need to make yeah freedom is tricky yeah but tim couldn't they argue couldn't they argue that they censored these this news about COVID or these debates about COVID because it was incitement? No, that's my cannot, that's my thing. I, because I think... the, because we already know very clearly, you know, the fallacy that the Supreme Court. Is I'm not saying it is, you. by the way. I'm just saying. No, no, no I understand. But, I'm just no, saying. No, no, I understand, Joe. Yeah. But, but my point is, I think we have successfully made it clear the fallacy that the Supreme Court ever said that you cannot yell fire in a crowded uh, a movie theater. That's a fallacy. You may do that. Now, you also may go to jail, and you also, if you're really bad about it, may go to jail for murder for the rest of your life because you caused an incitement that harmed people to the point of death. But you may not have any prior restraint on free speech under a First Amendment in this Constitution. If you And, and the greater criminal effort is not what people say. I mean, there are things people say all over the world, all the time, all throughout the United States that are harmful and inciting. I mean, Alex Jones, you know, is was inciting in a sense uh, related to Sandy Hook. Well, what happened? It's been adjudicated. He's going to pay a fine for it. And he has been dealt with. That, of course, he should have never been taken off of uh, platforms. That was unfair. And I think he's a kook. But, but the point is that kookiness is protected under the First Amendment. You may not have a prior restraint on free speech at all. You, you know that case about the kid in, in England? I forget. I think he's underage who got arrested for because he was, like, trying to train uh, people to kill. I don't, I don't remember all the details. I don't know if you know it or if someone here knows it, but... There was a kid that was underage that was basically recruiting people to be terrorists and to uh, commit a murder, basically, and someone did, and he wound up getting arrested, although he never met someone. Like, those things probably wouldn't have a warrant, should be taken down. Do you see what I mean? I think it's, like, very cloudy. The fact that he's willing to say it publicly like that makes it easier for uh, authorities to deal with than harder. So, so free speech is a good thing everywhere. It's not a perfect thing. It is a very messy thing. And actually, in some cases, people will utilize that right in a criminal way. But there's criminality happening in every aspect of human life all the time. The fundamental understanding of what mankind is is that we are basically not good people. We only become good when we learn to do good. Because of that, we pass laws 
to, uh, to uh, uh, go after criminal behavior. And we have a judicial system that, uh, that keeps the enforcement of those laws from violating the rights of individuals. That's the regime that protects people, not what uh, the, the, these organizations that have been built up in, in recent years under federal auspices are attempting to do. And, and I just, again, I'll just repeat it because people run in and out of this room, you know, that, that we have misinformation and disinformation campaigns happening every two years in the United States. They are called elections. And election activity is a primary purpose, not the only, but a primary purpose for the First Amendment to protect that effort. And it's not usually malign disinformation it's usually misinformation someone's being stupid didn't do their homework and that can have various kinds of effect we protect that speech disinformation though as well it, it, you know we should all go to jail if we lie right is that the law we should pass well no people lie that's disinformation we protect that under the american constitution and we should do so because as messy as it is there's no other way to protect people from government control because it's government that's the problem not the people. I second that emotion. May I get in on this? Would that be all right, guys? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Okay, my name's Dennis Neal. I was a journalist for 30 years, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, CNBC, Fox Business. Got a podcast, What's Bugging Me? I'm on Newsmax. I've written more stories about the Twitter files and the threat to all Americans than the staffs of the New York Times and Washington Post combined. And this is a big problem because there's a book out called The Fixer in which a crisis guy says, if you can't, even in this era of the great Twitter and the Internet, if you can't get the mass mainstream media to pick up your story, it dies. My worry, guys, is the Twitter file story, incredible journalism, some of the most amazing things I've ever seen reported on one of the monumental scandals of our lifetime. The story is fizzling because the New York Times, the Washington Post, the rest of the media are ignoring it. So I would like to offer, if anyone could get this to three of the most courageous journalists I've ever seen, Matt Taibbi, Barry Weiss, and, and, and Michael Schellenberger, and tell them, if you could please you know, give the New York Times an exclusive that shows the Trump administration, members there tried to get Twitter to, to censor the liberal press, censor the Times. If you can make it about them, they will realize that this is not about Twitter censoring conservative voices, which they have no problem with, guys. This is about government censoring Americans. We know from Matt Taibbi's reporting that the FBI said, hey, we these little accounts that only have 100 followers, we don't like what they're saying. Cut them down. Oh, this account over here, even though they're not popular, we want you to play that up because we like that message. We know that they were messing with everything. Twitter has every right as a private platform to censor anything it wants. When government suddenly is sitting at the table saying, do this, do that, it now is an unconstitutional prior restraint of the First Amendment. It's illegal. Government should be strung up by the thumbs. We are getting you this conversation, incredible firepower. You guys are brilliant, but you're getting into down into the tangle. What are we going to do to fix this? It's going to go nowhere. The Republicans want to take over Twitter and social media themselves if they take control of government. Twitter is not alone in this. 
How many millions of documents has Facebook destroyed and Google and YouTube and Snapchat because they were all in on it, because they were afraid to stand up to government. They weren't journalists. The Democratic liberal Ro Khanna said it best, and it was quoted by Kimberly Strassel at the, at the Wall Street Journal. Why didn't anybody inside Twitter ever think about asking about the First Amendment? So they screwed up. But government is wrong here, and we're never going to fix it if we don't get the media to pick it up. Someone else here just mentioned, was media complicit? There's that 2020 memo someone just showed. And I worry that that's one reason why they're bothering it. They're skipping it. We've got to get media enlisted. They've got to find a way to make it about themselves and to show that liberal voices were censored too. You know, Dennis. Those, I apologize for the rant. You know, Dennis, those are fantastic points. And I want to I want to put this into some perspective. So as someone who has worked in Republican circles, and even though you could roughly call me a conservative, I'm really kind of a libertarian fiscal conservative who's also pro-family and pro-life. But I was a chief of staff on Capitol Hill, and I, the, the gentleman I worked for, Tim Hillscamp from Kansas, was kicked off his committees by the Speaker of the House, John Boehner. Now, I, the reason I bring that up is this thing can get turned on anybody because of political design. And it can turn on Matt Taibbi, who's there. You know, Matt and, and the Schellenberger and Taibbi are, are liberals. They're not conservatives. They fall in that typical old line standard kind of Democrat liberal camp that also believed in civil rights. And they, it could get turned on. The, the reason they're interested in this is it could get turned on them. I mean, we could have a Republican administration coming in and wanting to use its full force. Donald Trump, anybody. I mean, George W. Bush actually did do it, and he got it passed in law. We call it the Patriot Act. So this is a- We know that the Trump administration, we know the Trump administration from Matt Taibbi, it sought to ban 5,500 accounts, and some of them were foreign government legitimate accounts in Canada and South America, and the Trump administration did that. Well, now, I will say this- With the Twitter files. I I will say this. What we're concerned about is domestic- efforts there I, and, and I don't agree with banning foreign accounts but that that is is le- even though it is problematic and I agree with you that it is it's less problematic than what's happening to individuals and that's what we got to be fighting for because Republican or Democrat conservative liberal wherever administrations can at any time for their own political purposes and their own aggrandized self-aggrandizement go in and shut people down if we don't destroy these regimes at the root because they are probably please understand what yes please understand it and i'll stop after this guys i apologize i've been reading this book by dan lyons called shut the flop up and so you start reading that and you feel self-conscious every time you 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 speak but um and now i've lost my point damn it yes we've got to make this for the media now now we know it's life and death because look at uh, Twitter's files chapter 19 and, and what they're putting up there, uh, Matt Taibbi and company, about censoring debate about these vaccines. I've written about this on TruthDAO, D-A-O, TruthDAO.news, as well as like a dozen tw- – I've done a, a, a half a dozen shows on the Twitter files. We've got to get the media to care and make it life and death and all Americans. We've got to show some liberal censorship, Democrat, uh, Democrats who got censored. Then the media will cover it. And someone please think- help make it happen. 
Do you think, think that maybe talking. they did too many like releases and sort of shot themselves? Uh, uh, no, 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 no. Let, well, let us not pe- blame the delivery. No, no. The media no, picked Dennis- this up. It's their fault. It's their fault. The media. I was in it for thirty years. They're ignoring it because they're either embarrassed or jealous or complicit. Well, I apologize wait. for talking over you. I'll stop now. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Uh, well, I was reading an article the other day. I was doing a little bit of research, and there was an article. Uh, I forget which publication, but. Um, they were doing a bit of a breakdown of every release and, and kind of explaining why, because they, they were getting that criticism of why they're not covering this. And so they went through every release and kind of went, okay, this is why this is a nothing burger. And this is why actually there's a little bit of merit in this particular one. So I feel like in some ways, um, while I don't necessarily agree with it, but I do think that in some cases, uh, there is a little bit of a mix in where some of these releases I don't think had so much merit and were over exaggerated. And some of them were pretty dramatic and absolutely should have been covered in a much more major way than they were. And even like the intercept covered, which, you know, is, is more, much more left leaning, but you know, they are trying to hold the establishment to account and are kind of living up to that. So I think there there is like a, a mixture of things. So I think that could have been handled a little bit better on that front. Yes, I don't want to like shoot the messenger. I'm not blame, putting the blame squarely at their feet. And I think the media should have still been able to sort of discern, okay, we won't cover this one because it's maybe not justified, but this one is important and let's like not dismiss the whole package. But I do think that, A, there's been so many releases and I do think that some of the bigger ones did kind of get buried as results because I think some of them are much more dramatic than others. And Catherine, and just, to be... add, uh, and just to add to what Catherine said, um, now not talking about the media but the general public, a lot of people I speak to who are very excited about the Twitter files release feel like now three months on, it's, it's been it's coming out too slow as well. Like this should have been done a lot quicker within a short shorter period of time. Um, so, what's your thoughts on both Catherine's point and my point? If, if I may, thank you so much. Guys, um, we're seeing some of the most amazing Pulitzer Prize worthy reporting of my entire lifetime. And now we instead are going to criticize the method in which they released it and whether it was enough. Understand that when you're at the New York Times and the Washington Post, and I believe I've checked this count recently and maybe outdated, they've done three or four stories combined total ever on the Twitter files at all. They're not assessing each release. And "Hmm, you know what? This doesn't look like uh, it's newsworthy. They have decided to block this story. And I want to know why. I respect these guys. I love the craft of journalism. And I worked for four of the best media companies in the world. And they're nowhere on this. TV, very hard to do this. It's very complex. But we should not be looking at and criticizing some of the most amazing reporting. They didn't come to me. Elon Musk didn't give me those files. He gave it to these guys. They've done great. But then other journalists, I don't know, are they just jealous? I worry they're complicit. I worry they were sitting at the table. And I worry that all of it was merely because... We want, we gotta stop Donald Trump. He's bad. He's terrible. I worry it was all about that. And it's too bad. It's not because of pro Trump or anything to do with that. This is censorship of Americans. One more thing, guys. I had this great First Amendment lawyer, Tom Jewell. I knew him in my college paper. He's done 300 First Amendment cases. He said, look, it's not just a few thousand accounts that they censored and those Americans' First Amendment rights were violated. Millions of Americans have the First Amendment right to listen to voices. 
that should not be censored by government. Our government censored for millions of people, and the media are ignoring it. And yet now we're going to criticize the way Matt Taibbi and his his guys, uh, you know, the way they they're covering it and release it. No, no, no. This is the wrong focus. You know, we, we've become too comfortable, guys, with, ah, oh, sure, this is not new. Of course the government spies. This is, this is forbidden. This, we cannot stand for it. And there's only 40 million people in the U.S. on Twitter. There's 300 million almost who don't know about this, and the media is not telling them. We've got to figure out a way to get the media to have a stake in this. So, Dennis, uh, you've answered Catherine's question, but you haven't answered mine because – like I said, you know, when it comes to the average person who are very excited about the Twitter files, some of them feel like three months on is just taking too slow to get all the information out. And so it should have been done in a more compressed time. And some people have got fatigue over it. So what's your answer to that? I think that, well, let's see. Let me try to be funny here. They should have an attention span longer than that of a gnat. They should be more concerned, not with how this was delivered, and more concerned with what it is saying, because no one realizes that the government is spying on everybody and willing to censor anyone. I mean, who among us doesn't feel like they're shadow banned? I have over 9,000 followers now. I'm lucky to get three likes, you know, you know, 20 views. I can swear I pray I'm being shadow banned, because if I'm not, it's simply embarrassing. But okay, look. I, you know, I, I feel like it's just so wrong to do this, but sure. Should they have found a way to ally with the New York Times? Yes. But you're a renegade. It's how you're, it's what you're doing. And would the New York Times have, have cozied up to this at all? No. The media are afraid this will help Trump. It, it, it's really more that the government censoring Americans and, and shame on all of big tech. But I wish I could see all of the caches of the trashed millions of emails that all of these platforms have deleted. Why aren't we talking more about that and worried about the complicity of Silicon Valley and how one-sided they were and how bad government was? But instead, we're going down into, well, you know, they took a while to really, you know, trickle out this most amazing government scandal of our lifetime. So really, that's where the problem is. We have to deal a little bit with where things are, where people are versus what we wish them to be. So you said, uh, you know, people should have the attention span of more. Well, they don't. I mean, I've sadly learned I, I had a, a huge disagreement with a friend of mine who said that like 97% of people are stupid or even he said 99%. And I had this big argument because I'm more of an idealist and an optimist and I'm starting to <laughs> come around a little bit more, you know, I'm not at the 97, 99% mark yet, but you know, unfortunately reality is what it is. And also with the journalists too, I mean, Yes, you could say that some of it is whatever the Trump derangement syndrome. I don't think that's all of it. And I think you have to kind of listen to what people are also saying um, and and kind of play with that because, you know, I wish they would do it differently. I wish I mean, I, I tried to do a whole thing where I pitched, you know, I have very kind of my credentials are all at these mainstream publications and. So I did a little experiment where I tried to see if they would let me cover the story, right? And and basically, not only did I not get a response, uh, d- didn't get a, an assignment, I I got crickets, which is unusual, right? So something oh, is going on. It is interesting. Whoa. However, you have to kind of like, okay, so how do you how do you deal with that reality, and how do you um 
and what are the reasons that they're giving you and how do you support uh, surpass that? How do you make somebody interested, right? And, and you touched on that earlier, right? Like, okay, can you give them, you know, files that Trump suppressed? Okay, like maybe that is the way if if that is a true thing. And, um, you know, and I mean, the intercept, I use that as an example, because the the relevance of that was not so political, right? Um, of the story that they covered, it was it was really something more major in a in terms of abuse of institutional power. And so stories like that. So if you're intentional and strategic, uh, you might, it might be better not to have to be, but sometimes you have to be in order to accomplish that goal of getting that story yeah, out. I, I understand what you're, you're saying. You make a good point. I've written 12 columns for TruthDAO, Newsmax.com, my own website about the Twitter files, trying to tell more people why they should be upset. Oh, I believe, by the way, that Americans are incredibly smart and incredibly wise because they live their lives and they get through life. And, and we're an incredible country with incredible people, all right? It's just that more people need to know what went on here. So I urge everyone listening here who tweets and writes and blogs and whatever, do a whole segment, you know, go down and please, you know, my columns are a good little, I've been stealing the Matt Taibbi stuff and all those guys like crazy and crediting him like crazy, but it's a great summary that you could then riff off of and put your own spin on. More people should be talking about this. We've got to get it out there. We've got to find a way to get the media to start picking this up and realizing that all Americans were censored here in some way, not just conservatives, because right now, the story is not getting out. And I do worry that it's fizzling, you know, when we get to this level of detail. And I, I question whether Washington's really going to ever correct it. I'm, I'm not sure I have my faith in the Republican side who are mounting an investigation at least. But I'm not sure I have a believe in it. And thank you. Um, Dr. Sabine, you've had your hand up for a while. Uh, your final yeah. thoughts, because we're going to uh, getting close to Yeah, a now. couple of things. Uh, Catherine, I think, is right, the 97%, but I think 97% of uh, people are not stupid. They're just fearful, and they follow. Only 3% of the population, if that, maybe 1% leads. And the problem is we've let the 1% lead us into the abyss, okay? We've got to stop the fear. People have got to speak up. People that have been injured need to speak up, stand up. They need to call the FDA. They need to report their side effects. It's cumbersome. It's annoying. But you've got to nag and you've got to be out there. Because until we expose the side effects and bring everybody to speak about this, we will not find solutions for these patients. And then it'll be too late. And let me tell you one thing that I've learned. Republican, Democrat, we're all patients at, that, at some point. And at that point, it's too late. So we've got to act now. Now I'm going to just tell you one thing because I've been listening on the, all this. Facebook, my experience with Facebook, I've been running clinical trials for almost three decades for pharma. I was always able to publicize my ads. I was always able to, 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 to roll an ad to get patients in recruitments, okay? I ran the, the two most controversial trials on my own will, the hydroxychloroquine, ZPAC, vitamin C, D, and zinc. I was running the placebo-controlled trial on my money, on my own will, I put the ads on Facebook, I was banned. In fact, to this day, I am not allowed to advertise anything. And it says your advertising access is restricted. On all my pages, whether it's clinical trial recruitment, whether it's progenobiome, whether it's any of my pages that I've used in the past 
for recruitment for clinical trial for psoriasis study, acne. I could not recruit in the middle of the pandemic. That is a big problem because this is interference with research. So we've gone a little bit too far when you are stopping the, you know, somebody, an investigator from doing research. So that's one thing. Um, also, I got threats from people pretending they were Elvis Chen, the FBI agent. It just happened that I did my own research and it wasn't Elvis Chen from the FBI. So there is a whole group of, I don't want to call them terrorism or rioters or something that is basically stopping research that is interfering, that is behind the scene, acting behind all this. I have no problem with the government knowing everything I'm doing. I believe in full transparency. I want the government to pay attention. I want the FBI to pay attention. I want the FDA to pay attention. We, the people, need to stop the fear and get the government to start paying attention to us. That means for every Democrat and Republican that is having a high heart rate after they get vaccinated or they're having chest pain or foggy brain or they think they have long hauler, but really it's probably the vaccine, they need to speak up because all this needs to be investigated. We'll never advance the research to help these folks if we don't talk now. Sorry, that's I've said uh, my two minutes. Uh, oh, and the last thing, one more thing. There should be a liability. We as doctors have a liability when we don't tell an informed consent on aspirin to our patients that they could get a GI bleed. If people are educating patients and they don't even have a medical degree, there should be a liability on that. So, you know, that's how the lawyers can step in and say, have you been given information on social media that affected your health? Please contact the law office of blah, blah, blah. We need to start having these measures into this country and lawyers need to step it up. That's it. Thanks for that. Um, Name your final thoughts. Uh, I will keep it short, but the bottom line is this. Uh, thousands of people in this room, people speaking up here. Everyone has a disagreement on, you know, what, whatever side of the aisle you're on, politics, COVID vaccines, whatever the hell it may be. The bottom line is this. The only way to counter misinformation or disinformation is through public debate. So if, um, you know, anyone on this panel says something I don't agree with, or that I think is wrong, and I can provide a fact or some data that backs up my argument, there should just be healthy public debate about issues. Uh, government should not be the one managing what we are seeing online. And that's where we're at today. And if you believe that that's okay, uh, then trust me, it's going to be turned on you in the future. And Catherine, your final thoughts, please. Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, for, for me, all of these, I think the biggest distinction, I think when I first started, even with this Twitter files journey is that, um, I was more, I, I think I cared more about Twitter censorship, but I think, um, for me, it's really about the government and, um, and sort of eliminating people's ability to, uh, be able to have access to all information just breeds mistrust and I think it causes more extreme reactions and I think we're seeing so much more of that nowadays uh, pe- people's distrust and and 
And when you tell them something that is true, they're less likely to believe it. And I think that's a very dangerous place to be. And I think that is kind of caused by all these things that have been happening over the past few years. And that's, that's really unfortunate uh, consequence and an, an intentional perhaps consequence, but uh, something that uh, needs to be taken care of. Um, Ian? Oh, just, uh, hey, yeah, excellently muted myself. Just, you know, keep fighting the good fight. Don't get blackpilled. It's easy to think, oh, nobody cares, nobody cares. Well, if you think like that, then, of course, if you don't care, that pessimism is going to spread. you got to get people to care by caring yourself. Just lead by example. Make make noise. Talk to your representatives. Uh, make phone calls and tell people about it. Tell people what's going on. Be concerned about this because... Right now, you know, the fight, it might seem difficult, but it's going to get even harder in the future if we don't stop this right now. Ed, your final thoughts? Yeah, I, I mean, I think everybody's against censorship. Everybody's for free speech. I think that the issue is where the line is drawn. I, I know I talk about that line a lot, but I, I think it's true. I think, you know, I, I think there's a certain extent to which the FBI and the government should be able to inform corporations about things that they think are going on. But at the same time, I think those companies have to make the decisions for themselves. And those decisions have to be decisions that are good for, the, for that company. Uh, should, how, how, much should the gov- how much should Congress or the government kind of step in and say that, you know, private companies shouldn't be able to make those decisions? I don't know. I think, again, Everybody's going to have a different line. Joa? Yeah, I, I mean, I echo what, uh, I'm not going to add anything to what Ian said, although we look at it from two different points of view. I think what he said was perfect, like be vigilant, be stay curious, um, and keep an open mind and hopefully influence other people to keep an open mind and do their own research. Thanks for that. And I'll just give final thoughts before we close. So for me, um, this Twitter files was probably one of the most um, concerning because it was very clear in their focus and their psychology, which was that they wanted to stop the truth in order to get people to uh, listen to authority. And any time you have that scenario where people are telling you, guess what? Don't listen to the truth and listen to me. That is the starting point of a society which is very corrupt and very controlling and a totalitarian society. And that society you never want to be a part of because it breeds darkness, it breeds breeds evil. The worst things in society occur through that, that type of regime and we saw that throughout history. And so even if you're a left liberal, even if you're a Democrat, even if you're a conservative, it doesn't matter what you are. The point is this. Do not let your society become that because there's a reason why Western society was the leading society of the world. And it seems like now through these things, you, it, it's moving towards the very thing, uh, uh, moving towards and going against the very thing that made it the elite in the first place. But anyway, I want to thank everybody yeah, for listening. Suleiman, so, can I ask one thing? It, it has Gosh. nothing to do with what we're talking about, but it just came across the wire and I have to jump in 10 minutes. So I might drop a bomb and, and split, but anyone expect the news just broke that uh law enforcement's prepping to um uh press uh, an, an indictment on trump next week um anyone worried about violence like like uh, civil unrest so we are going to have a space later on in the evening 
uh, about oh, perfect. We'll cover that. Perfect, we will perfect. cover it in, the, in that one. As well I'll as be the, there as then. Well as, yeah, as well as Biden's... Um, uh, not Biden worried in a bit. Um, not Martin, even worried a little bit, Joa. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's I think one the of FBI. Those. The FBI doesn't care if any of us are worried or not. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. Um, yeah, look, I, I obviously I wasn't part of this space, but on on moderation, I want to end it with like an interesting note that would uh, you know trigger a few people. I think moderation itself um, or censorship itself is. I think all of you will agree it's not a bad thing within itself. You know, there's some things that should be censored. It just uh, it says two tough questions. One that's not too hard to kind of find middle ground on is what needs to be censored, what doesn't. There's some tricky ones, you know, things that might lead to a bank run when a bank is healthy, because bank runs can just kill a healthy bank. Should they be censored? There's an argument to be made for both. You know, name, me and name redacted, we're talking about this yesterday. Uh, but then the, the question, the main question when, when you're talking about censorship, we've mentioned this a lot of times over the last few months, is that who decides who censors? So that person that makes those decisions is the is, for me is the issue um so if if we if we can kind of decentralize the concept of censorship where all of us could agree together what should or what should be censored vote on it somehow and that is gets implemented channel twitter is working towards that for me that that sounds like the best solution but i'm sure there's going to be flaws within that that we're going to find out and now with ai taking over the world it's going to make it more important yet more interesting and we're going to be covering ai in future spaces but to don't want to trigger a new debate. It's probably good for the next Twitter files job to kind of discuss that a bit more. I'll, I'll, I'll be more involved. Now, we are going to have the daily news headlines today space in about 30 to 60 minutes, I guess. So keep an eye out on um, on my account. We'll, we'll, we'll uh, host it from my account today. And, um, and yeah, enjoy the hour break that you all.